Hey guys, before we start the show, this episode is for all episodes of Season 5 of Creepypasta Myths. This is more of a compilation of all Creepypasta episodes, so please enjoy this three hour long plus episode. But if you already listened to these episodes for Season 5, then please enjoy the new episodes that I have for Season 6. Enjoy. Welcome to Season 6 of Creepypasta Myths. I am your host, Andrew. Please, enjoy tonight's creepy reading. Let's begin. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Man in the Fields Ritual. Written by Anonymous. This ritual has been passed down throughout the centuries and originates from the British Isles during the Middle Ages, where it was viewed as devil worship by Puritans and a way to protect your home by those who knew that what was really standing in their fields was not the devil. If completed successfully, the ritual will ensure you one year of safety, physical, fiscal, and or mental, depending on the events during the ritual. You will need a house in the countryside, preferably with a field of crops out back. Technically, all that's required is a large backyard. The larger the better. But success has only come from houses in the countryside. A candle. Attempting to use a flashlight, cell phone, or any other electronic source of light will be unsuccessful, causing the light source to flicker and die after only a few seconds, which is why either a candle or oil lamp or any sort of non-electronic illumination is recommended. A crucifix. I'll explain why later. A watch or clock to carry around with you. Again, cell phones will not work during the ritual. To begin the ritual, make sure it is late enough for no one around to be outside, and make sure that the sun has set. The being the ritual is based around will not appear if anyone other than the summoner is around to detect its presence. The earliest successful summon was at 9 o'clock. Light your candle, go out into your yard, and whisper seven times. But who will scare the crows away? While facing the house, on the seventh whisper, you should hear from behind you, That's not your biggest problem. Walk back to the house without looking back. As soon as you reach the house, 
get inside and close the door. Now the ritual begins. Everything in your house that can be open has. Take your crucifix into a room with only one door. Close the door and leave it there. That will be your safe room in case the ritual goes wrong. Make sure all the doors, cupboards, cabinets, and whatever else that can be open is closed in there. If he gets into your safe room, you're doomed. Your goal is to close everything that is open before your watch reaches midnight. This sounds easy in description, but think about it. Every bag, every door, every window, every container in your house has just opened. The challenge isn't closing them all, it's remembering them all. As you make your way through your darkened house, you will notice that out in the corner of your eye, you will be able to see a man, dressed in a simple farmer's clothes. Out of the corner of your eye, his skin is ash gray. Don't look at him. And whatever you do, don't look directly into his eyes. But don't be afraid of him. This is not the man in the fields. He is merely a herald. A referee of sorts to make sure that you're closing every container. He will be following you, but will not get in your way. Make sure not to look out into your backyard. If you do, you will notice that there is a scarecrow that wasn't there. Its head is a cow's skull, and its limbs are impossibly long versions of a human being's arms and legs. While the skin on its arms and legs is pale, they are not skeletal. The only thing that is missing is a head. If you fail the ritual or do not reach your safe room in time, he will take yours. The reason I was telling you not to look at the backyard is that you will notice the scarecrow. He will also notice you. He will then begin to get off his post. This is the man in the fields. If you don't look at the backyard, don't see the post and the scarecrow, you will have until midnight to complete the ritual. If you are 100% sure that everything in your house that can open has closed, make your way to your bed and go to sleep. For exactly one year, you will have complete and total safety in everything you do, depending on when you started the ritual. If you started it three hours from midnight, you will only be completely physically safe. A lot of people have used this to elongate their life past where they would normally end, people like cancer patients and the elderly. If you started two hours from midnight, you will not only be physically safe, but financially safe for a year. You could quit your job and still never have a need for money. Either you win the lottery or people just feel compelled to give you everything for free. However, you will need to set up a plan for the end of the year, as your safety will wear off then and you will lose all the money you have won. Make sure to either set up a business or make some smart investments. If you started the ritual one hour from midnight and somehow managed to finish it, highly unlikely. You will be completely and totally safe for one year. None of your actions will ever have a negative consequence. I'd tell you not to do anything immoral, but if you're going to go through your entire house in one hour and somehow manage to close all the boxes, doors, windows, cupboards, bags, cabinets, and drawers, then you can do whatever the hell you want. If you did look out at the backyard 
if you saw the man in the fields. You will not get any of this, not even if you finished the ritual. If you looked out in the backyards, the man in the fields will get down off his scarecrow post. He will look at you. He will begin sprinting. You have a minute at most to get to your safe room. Run inside and lock it tight, and double check to see if everything is closed inside. You do not want him getting in. You will have to endure him scratching and clawing at the door, shrieking threats and promises of mercy if you open the door. Whatever he says or does, do not open the door. There is no circumstances in which you should leave your safe room to confront the man in the fields. Good luck, and stay safe. The Amazing World of Gumball, the Unknown, written by Anonymous. The Amazing World of Gumball has been my favorite TV show for about three years now. I enjoy the humor, mostly because I'm 11 and the humor is hilarious to me. And I just love the characters, animation, dialogue, etc. I just love everything about it. One summer I was up late, later than I usually am in the summer. I was up at 5.30 a.m. Of course, it was only 30 minutes until Cartoon Network was back on. I decided I should go back to my bed when my iPad vibrated for a notification. It was from Cartoon Network's Twitter. It said, A new episode of Gumball comes out at 6 a.m., which was 30 minutes away. So I decided to stay up for another hour or so. I got some microwave burritos and some Dr. Pepper and waited. Another tweet was sent out, describing it was an episode testing out a new animation software. This really got me excited. Only 29 more minutes. Finally, it was only 3 minutes away. I almost fell asleep, but one final tweet came out. It kind of gave me chills. It said, The new Gumball episode may be somewhat weird. We wouldn't air this kind of stuff, but if we didn't, Something would happen to us. This will. And then they continued the tweet because of the 140 character tweet limit. Only be aired three times. 6am today, 7.30am tomorrow, and 6.30am in two days. Please, we beg of you, do not even try to post this on a cartoon. And it continues once more. Sight or whatever. This should not be seen. We will explain this in a later tweet, and hopefully we can get some help to delete this. Thanks. By the time I finished reading the tweets, the show started. It started normal, the usual intro, nice and cheery. The episode's name was ZNKLATKXGR, followed with JU2's SKTZ. A bunch of letters that made no sense. I paused the DVR and copied the message down on a notebook to look it up later. The episode finally started. It opened with Gumball sleeping. After this, the color started twitching for about 3 seconds. I thought it was my TV, which is nearly 15 years old. But I played it back with the DVR and it was the episode. I thought it was just a small technical glitch. It happens sometimes. This is when things became weird. I hear screaming. 
I thought it was from my house, so I paused the episode and ran out there to see who was screaming. The noise had woke up my brother from that. I asked him if he heard screaming. He replied with a yes. I then went to my mom, but she told me she didn't hear anything. I told my brother I was watching an episode of Gumball, and Cartoon Network's tweets made it seem suspicious. I showed him the tweets, but my brother thought he was still dreaming, and he went back to bed. I went back to my room and continued the episode, but I wish I hadn't. The screaming became more tense, tenser and tenser. Gumball finally woke up and screamed. Darwin wasn't there. Gumball ran downstairs to see a pool of blood. I thought maybe the Cartoon Network was threatened by someone to air this. Gumball screamed when he saw something. Something. I don't know what it was. But it just showed a screen with a blue text saying, Words I can't read. I didn't feel like copying this down because it was so long. It went back to Gumball, shivering in a corner like someone he loved, died. Which is obviously what happened due to all the blood. I watched the episode fade to black. Then a red-colored Gumball with no pupils appeared for two seconds. And that's the last thing I saw before my power went out. I told my mom the power went out, and she called the power company over. They came around 6.07, which was preventing me from watching the episode. I'm sort of glad I missed most of it, because what I saw can never be forgotten. They finally fixed the power around 6.10, which meant only one more minute of the show. I got to watch the last minute. All it showed was just bloody organs with Gumball's severed head on the carpet. I then saw that what looked like Darwin's body getting thrown by some black censored bars. Obviously, there was something hiding it. It then showed a saw digging into Darwin's legs. Flesh and blood was just exploding out of Darwin's body. Then it happened with Anais. Same thing, except her legs were chopped off. There was only 15 seconds left until 6.11, which is when Gumball signed off. It faded to a black screen with a censored bar. It stayed there for 13 seconds. The next two seconds was the censored bar revealing to be a mirror. I made a quick theory that it meant I was the murderer. I don't know why I thought that. But don't mirrors show what you look like? It was a good theory to me. After that episode ended, I literally just couldn't close my eyes. I couldn't think about what I saw. All I did was turn the TV off and go into the kitchen to put the microwave burritos back and I kept the Dr. Pepper. I actually still had the mirror picture in my head. I had to go to the bathroom and during using the bathroom, I fainted because of the mirror. The mirror. That's all I could think about for the next week and a half. I actually failed three tests because I wrote the papers were the mirror. I was so weird about this mirror that I wouldn't even talk to my best friend. All I'd say was, the mirror, the mirror. I couldn't even say hi to anyone. The teachers told my school therapist to talk to me. I didn't say anything about what I watched. All I said was, the mirror. I actually got sent home one day because the teachers really thought I needed time to myself. I finally snapped out of it when I saw a real mirror. 
two years have passed since that week. Remember that text I wrote down? The ZNK and all those jumbled words? Well, I looked it up and came across this code called Cypher. I learned how to decipher this text, and here's what it said. The funeral. Do not mention this episode at all costs. Anyways, I'm done talking about this. Cartoon Network only aired it once and never explained it. In fact, they went off air for like a week because of it. This is a moment I will never forget. One thing I still want to know is what that mirror means. What does it truly mean? Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode. Sandman, written by Kitsune Uriel. I don't know why I'm posting this, to be honest. I could save it to a draft, but I feel like he visits anyone else in the world. It can help them succeed where I failed. If not, and I'm the only one haunted by this, maybe it'll bring some people entertainment. <laughs> Entertaining people with my torture from this. Whatever the hell it is. I only have a few minutes before I forget. It called itself the Sandman. Though it's not like the one from the cute cartoon movie that came out recently. I should also mention this is to help me prepare for the next visit of that thing once I forget. It's not even been one minute since the Sandman left from its visit. Every night at 11.50pm, my memories of this thing and all my visits with it rush back into my mind along with the urge to make some tea. At 12 on the dot, 10 minutes later, I get a knock on the door and open it to the Sandman. When it first started to visit, I had just moved into this cabin out of the woods in Canada. I won't say which province for your safety. Originally, I had been living down in Texas with my adoptive parents. Supposedly, I was born in Canada, hence why I moved up here, even though I had no real ties to this place. Anyways, my first encounter was three weeks after I had moved into this cabin. I'd finally set up all my furniture, gotten supplies like food and water, since it was a few hours away from the closest town. I liked solitude. I had gotten loads of entertainment like DVDs, comics, etc. Even though I do have Wi-Fi, I'm writing this after all. I need to get back on topic. I'm starting to forget. The Sandman is a tall, slender man in a navy blue suit with a white undershirt and a red tie. I'm starting to forget them. He wears a black fedora and carries a cane with a white stripe on the bottom and a gold stripe on the handle. His face is always in, in this weird, twisted smile. His teeth are yellow 
as a lemon, which is what he likes with his tea. Not even cut up, just eating it like an apple. His eyes are purple? Or maybe blue? Whatever. The, the suit should be enough. He asked to invite him in. I've tried once to deny the request, and let's just say I don't want to see that demonic form of the Sandman's again. If I didn't forget when he left, I would have gone crazy, I'm sure. Aside from that one incident, the Sandman is very, very nice, I suppose. He even apologized the next visit. When he asked to be invited in, I invited him and served him the tea with the lemon. He'll eat it like an apple. Either poison the tea or apple, I, I don't know what will kill it. As he enjoys his tea and lemon, he'll talk to me like we're old friends about his day or whatever, where he guides souls through their dreams. No, not dreams, nightmares. He guides evil souls like the Grim Reaper through horrific nightmares he exclaimed once, and I will go through horrific details about them. The least horrifying one was a woman who sold drugs that a kid overdosed on and he was killed in a car crash. He made her nightmare be slugs crawling through her skin, out her ears, mouth, nose, choking but not really killing her, as he said since she was already dead. After he finishes five cups of tea, he leaves. Don't show him out. You'll have the worst nightmare of your life that night. When he stops in the doorway and says, Goodbye, good boy. Please buy more lemons and tea for next time. Just simply say goodbye, Sandman. Have a nice night with the evil souls. He'll smile, wink, and leave. Then you're safe. As for the ways to kill him, do the poison like I mentioned. Maybe ask a priest or something about him. Don't invite others over. He stated on the first day before he left that he would give you a horrible flu and still come to visit. Okay, it seems like I forgot what I was writing about earlier. By what seems to be me? Because I don't know how I got to my computer just now or why I'm writing this. I guess there's a monster or whatever. I don't know. It could be me just making some good entertainment for people. I guess. Maybe I'll post it. I don't take drugs, so I don't know why I wrote this. I guess if this is real, it'll explain why I blacked out around the end of 11. And come back, or whatever you want to call it. I wonder if there's something where I live that's causing me to hallucinate. I guess I'll have to check it out. The Wyoming Incident, written by Anonymous. The Wyoming Incident, or the Wyoming Hijacking, is a lesser-known case of television broadcast hijacking slash hacking. A hacker managed to interrupt broadcasts from a local programming channel, believed to serve several smaller communities in the country, and aired his slash her own video. The video contained numerous clips of disembodied human heads, 
showing various emotions and poses. The camera position changed often, usually every 10 to 15 seconds, and the video was often interrupted by a special presentation announcement. This clip is taken from one of these intervals. The video is most locally well known, and would probably not even be that popular if it were not for the effects it had on the few residents who watched it for an extended period of time. Complaints included vomiting, hallucinations, headaches, etc. While some believed it was paranormal, specialists have determined that the cause of these afflictions were frequencies played regularly throughout the broadcast. In this clip, the frequency being played is somewhere between 7 and 19 hertz. This range of frequency, when played for long periods of time, causes the eyes to vibrate, sometimes inducing visual hallucinations. This video is significant in that is one of the most recent television hijackings. Such actions were rare even in the 80s. Search for Chicago Max headroom incident, and are even more rare today. The hacker has not yet been caught, and all attempts to trace the video have been proven futile. I'll leave the link to the video below, but watch at your own risk.
Who Are You Running From? Written by Anonymous The Game Boy Camera was seen as a revolutionary piece of technology when it first hit shelves in 1998. The idea that you could take real pictures with your Game Boy and print them, no less, was unthinkable at the time. Tons of kids rushed to the stores to buy the world's smallest digital camera to go with their Game Boy Color, blissfully unaware of what to expect from the game that came with it. The game came with several mini-games aside from the typically simple picture editing software. You could even play a Space Invaders type game with your picture as the final boss. The main menu interface included the options, shoot, view, and play. If the player chose to shoot on the interface, he or she would be greeted by a screen that resembles some sort of strange JRPG. More options would appear on the screen, such as shoot, items, magic, check, and run. If the run option was selected, a strangely distorted face would appear on the screen. The face appears to be doodled on, with fake hair, lips, eyebrows, and eyes crudely drawn over a male's face. A black star is seen to be imprinted on the face's forehead. The man in the photo seems to be posing with one finger over his mouth, as if telling someone to shush. The picture comes with a caption as well, which reads, Who are you running from? In the American version of the game slash accessories, two other faces can randomly appear throughout the game. One face seems to be of a man whose face has also been drawn on. He has been given female hair, and a bizarre wave symbol had been drawn on his forehead. The other face was obviously female, with artificial eyes and drawn pigtails. This face had the same wave symbol drawn onto her forehead. These faces were occasionally accompanied by the same eerie inquiry. Who are you running for? The Japanese version of the game had two additional faces that would pop up at random intervals while playing. The first face seems to be male, with scribbled eyes and an unnerving smile. It is unclear whether or not the hair on his face is real, as the resolution is extremely low. The face also had waves drawn onto its forehead. 
The final face is seemingly of a man with a drawn scowl and cartoonishly long hair. The eyes of his face are also doodled, as well as most of the other features on his face. This face is the only one without a symbol on its forehead, and is also the only face without a devilish synthetic smile. Another more subtle difference is that this picture seems to have been taken in a different location than all the others. The previous face all have nothing but a white backdrop, but this one seems to have some sort of object in the background. It is believed that this picture are the results of a kidnapping done by a strange cult. The figure with the black star drawn on his forehead is said to be the leader of the group while the ones with the waves were said to be the disciples. The face without any symbols and the dark scowl is believed to be the unlucky victim. It is unclear what the condition of the victim is in the photograph, or how these pictures managed to be included in the game. The motive of the cult is also unclear, as nobody that resembled the victim was ever recovered. We Don't Talk About Sarah, written by William Dalphine. I always wanted a little sister. I would beg my parents, please, please, and they'd roll their eyes and tell me that it wasn't as simple as I thought. That didn't stop me from talking about it every chance I got, though. When they brought Sarah home, it was the happiest day of my life. She was so cute. I couldn't wait to share my toys with her. I started going through them, deciding which ones were hers and which ones were mine. I borrowed my daddy's label maker and started putting our names on each thing so we wouldn't get them confused. She cried a lot at first. I'd asked my parents why she cried so much and they told me that it was natural. They said when she got used to us and our house, she would calm down and not cry all the time. Sometimes though, She'd cry so loud that Daddy would have to take her into the basement where it was soundproof so the neighbors wouldn't complain. She slept in Mommy and Daddy's bed for the first month. Sometimes I'd try to join them, but they'd always lock their door. Mommy said that their bed wasn't big enough for all of us to sleep in. I was patient. I knew the new bed with the bars that they'd set up in the room would eventually be hers. When they felt it was safe to let her sleep on her own, they started putting her in it. She wasn't crying so much anymore by then, and I would lie in bed and watch her sleep from across the room. They'd take her into their bedroom first and lay with her until she fell asleep, then move her to our room. Some nights after she was moved, I'd see her lying there with her eyes open, just staring at the ceiling. So I'd go over and give her toys through the bars. A lot of the time she'd just throw the toys and then start crying and I'd had to hide under my covers before Daddy came in to deal with her. Eventually, they started letting Sarah sit with me in the playroom. I was told that I wasn't allowed to give her anything too small or sharp that she could hurt herself with. I was so happy. I would sit behind her and brush her hair and tell her that she was the best little sister in the world. I showed her which toys were hers and which were mine, but she didn't seem to care. Sometimes, we'd sit on the window seat and she'd bang on the window while I drew on it with special crayons. School started back up at Sugar Creek Elementary, and I went, but Sarah had to stay home. Mommy said that she wasn't ready for school yet. I'd come home and tell Sarah all the stuff I've learned. I drew pictures of us playing together, 
when I showed them to Daddy, he'd tell me, thank you, and take them to keep in his office. Then came the really bad day. I'll never forget it. I came home from school and Mommy was just sitting at the table smoking. She looked real sad. I wanted to play with Sarah, but I couldn't find her. When I went to ask Mommy where she was at, she started crying. I asked her what was wrong, and she said that Sarah was gone. I didn't understand totally, but I started crying too, and I told her, we need to find her, and said that she's gone somewhere we couldn't go. Daddy took her bed apart. He threw away all my drawings with her in them. He took my name tags off all the toys. Sometimes I'd find one he'd miss, and it'd make me cry. I started collecting them and hiding them, but he found where I hid them one day by accident, and he got really mad. We weren't allowed to talk about her. It was like she never existed. I didn't think it was fair. I told mommy that daddy was being mean, to make us not talk about Sarah, but she said it was better this way, and I would understand when I'm older. I saw Sarah again. It was just one time, but I'll never forget it. I was with mommy doing some errands. We went grocery shopping, then went to a fabric store in Thorntown so mommy could look at some material to make some new curtains out of it. She remembered that she had letters to mail, so we stopped by a post office to buy some stamps. I was humming to myself and reading posters while mommy talked to the lady behind the counter, and that's when I saw Sarah. She was as cute as I remembered. I walked over and looked at the poster with her picture, but they'd gotten her name wrong. Somebody had written her name as Shannon. I rushed over to mommy and tugged on her sleeve and told her that Sarah was up on the wall with the other pictures of children, but she got all flustered and apologized to the lady before dragging me out of the post office. I had to shout because she kept trying to talk over me instead of listening. I saw Sarah. They got her picture on the wall in there. Finally, mommy slapped me and told me it wasn't Sarah and that it may have looked like Sarah, but it was mistaken. And if I didn't stop, I'd get in real trouble with daddy when he got home. I cried and I promised to be good, but even after I promised, I wasn't allowed to have dinner, and I had to sit in my room that night. I heard mommy and daddy talking in the kitchen, and they got kind of loud. Somebody started banging open the kitchen drawers, and then daddy's feet stomped up the stairs, but I heard mommy scream, DON'T YOU DARE! and he stopped outside my room, then went back downstairs. We never went back to that post office, and I never saw Sarah again. This is the first time I've talked about Sarah since that day. Mariana Mortegard Glasgorf, written by Anonymous. There is a video on YouTube named Mariana Mortegard Glasgorf. If you search this, you will find nothing. The few times you find something, all you will see is a 20 second video of a man staring intently at you, expressionless, then grinning for the last two seconds. The background is undefined. This is only part of the actual video. The full video lasts two minutes and was removed by YouTube after 153 people who viewed the video gouged their own eyes out and mailed them to the YouTube's main office in San Bruno. Said people had also committed suicide 
in various ways. It is not yet known how they managed to mail their eyes after gouging them out. The cryptic inscription they carved on their forearms has not yet been deciphered. YouTube will periodically put the first 20 seconds of the video to quell suspicion so that people will not go look for the real thing and re-upload it. The video itself was only viewed by one YouTube staff member, who started screaming after 45 seconds in. This man is now under constant sedation and is apparently unable to recall what he saw. The other people who were in the same room as him while he viewed it and turned off the video for him say that all they heard at the time was a high-pitched drilling sound. None of them dared to look at the screen. The person who uploaded the video was never found, the IP address being non-existent, and the man in the video has never been identified. The video. There are several versions of the Mariana Mortegard Gliscorv video circulating the web. Some people claim to still feel strange after watching it, but nothing bad comes of it. Doug's Real Life, written by K.L. Simpson. Everyone remembers the show Doug, one of the original three Nicktoons. It seemed like a pretty normal show about the challenges of a young boy faced in his daily life, but I always got a weird kind of feeling from it. Compared to others' kids' shows, Doug seemed more negative and anxiety-centered. Doug was also worried about something, and in most episodes, he would have fantasies of everyone he knew cruelly laughing at him due to whatever problem he was facing that week. Doug always came through in the end, though, and every episode ended with him writing in his journal about how he had overcome his blown-out-of-proportion problem. In 2005, I began to have dreams about the show for no apparent reason. I cannot remember the details, but they made me want to see the show again. The show had not even been seen in reruns for years at this point, so I could not think of any way to see it again. To my surprise, however, it came back for one week in the fall of 2005, airing at 6am on weekdays. I watched it for all five days. The first four were episodes I remembered, but they did not sync up with my memories perfectly. It had been a while, so I just chalked it up as flaws of my memory. The Friday episode, though, was something I was positive I had never seen before. It started with the normal intro with the line drawings, but the characters never appeared. The lines continued as normal, reacting as if the normal characters were there. Once the intro ended, it switched to show Doug in a dark room, writing in his journal. He was not narrating his writing like he usually did. He just silently wrote for about a minute. The screen faded out, and the usual episode title screen appeared, yet there was no skit this time. There were just giant letters forming the title Doug's Real Life. The episode opened with Doug eating breakfast. He was giving a voiceover about how there was a big test he had neglected study for. As his family was having a normal conversation, the screen started flashing. The flashes seemed to be showing something, but they did not last long enough for me to figure out what they were there for. Doug left his house and began walking to school. During his stroll, he had one of the fantasies about his life being ruined. 
Miss Wingo announced that Doug had flunked the test, and the entire class started laughing at him, with their heads swirling around Doug. This went on for longer than most other fantasies, and the laughter sounded crueler than usual. When Doug got to school, the screen flashed again. This time it stayed on the new image, or rather, the new animation style. The colors were darker, and many objects had changed colors. It resembled a negative film. Doug was walking through the school hallway, which was full of kids who had never been seen in the show before. No one paid any attention to him. After Doug got to his desk, the animation switched back to normal. Suddenly, for no reason, the scene changed to after school had ended. Doug was walking home, worrying to himself about the test. Upon reaching his house, his dog Porkchop greeted him. Doug began talking to him until the screen flashed. Porkchop turned into a hunk of rotting meat and Doug's house became decrepit. Doug went into his house and acted as if he was talking to someone, though it was completely deserted. After interacting with invisible people for a while, he sat down at an empty table. The screen flashed again and Doug's family was there with him eating dinner. The phone rang and Doug's mom answered it. Doug instantly thought it was his teacher telling him about how he flunked the test. Doug had a fantasy about his parents yelling at him for failing. In it, they grew to be gigantic and their faces became twisted and dark red. The screen flashed back to an empty house. Doug was crying and apologizing, but there was no one else in the room. He went up to his bedroom which was completely empty except for a book and a pencil. Doug picked up the book and started writing. He narrated this time. I can't tell which one is real. Invader Zim Lost Episode Gur's Rage Written by Anonymous Today I got a DVD of all Invader Zim episodes at a garage sale. Cool, right? Well, you're wrong. They seemed generous to give me the disc, but they had that look like they were relieved of getting rid of it. Does anyone else find that strange? Anyways, I went back to my house. I watched all the episodes, but then I saw another episode. Must have been an unfinished episode because the intro, there was no music. I thought, however, there was audio in the episode itself. Gur was eating a taco as usual, but Zim snatched the taco and shouted at Gur. He said to never bring smelly human food in the base. Ever. I thought Gur would ignore him as usual, but I was wrong about that too. Gur's eyes turned red and evil music was playing, and Gur busted open the front door and walked out without his disguise. Gur went to Dib's house. As usual, Dib wanted to manipulate Gur, but he was standing still, as if he was ignoring him. Gur came closer to the screen, and it cut to Dib, terrified. Gur was tearing out Dib's organs and put them in a taco shell. Gur went over to Professor Membrane's lab and knocked over every machine and test tube causing a fire. The fire was photorealistic, 
Professor Membrane shouted, It's a disaster! No! No! Like he really meant it. And not in a comedic way, either. Gurr smashed Professor Membrane against the wall, knocking him out. Gurr ripped out his lever and also stuffed it in the taco shell. He looked upstairs. I knew who he was going to kill next. Gurr flew over to Gaz's room. Gaz obviously was not glad to see him, but she had more of a terrified expression. Gurr's hand turned into a buzzsaw and started to slash at Gaz. Gaz dodged as much as she could, but when she was trying to get out of her room, she tripped. Gurr dissected Gaz and sliced up her heart and put the pieces in the taco shell. Gurr went back to Zim's house. Zim walked backward in fright. Gurr was floating over. His hand turned into a saw, and Gurr chased Zim around the base. Zim tripped, then got up. He ran out of his base with his disguise, being chased by Gurr, who still had no disguise. Zim was cornered by houses. Gurr chopped Zim's legs off, and Zim was dragged toward Gurr. Zim's body hit Gurr, who became bloodstained. Gurr then chopped up Zim and put his pieces in the taco shell, which became a taco with legs, arms, and all sorts of bodies in it. Gurr started to eat the taco, and he walked back to the base. I haven't looked at Invader Zim the same way, ever, again. Can't Sleep, written by Anonymous. It's the middle of the night. You're laying in bed, sweating. You can't sleep. You're frightened to turn around in bed to see what's lurking in the darkness behind you. You know nothing's behind you. Things like that don't exist. But you're scared. So you decide to turn around. You can do it. Just go quickly. Nothing will be there. You quickly spin around in bed and stare into the darkness. Nothing's there. You lay down. You had just scared the crap out of yourself. You did. Not the darkness. You need to go to the bathroom. So you get up and sit on the edge of your bed. You look around. Still nothing there. You stare at the light shining through the crack in your doorway. And you make a run for it. You run out your door and turn the corner to your bathroom. You run in, close the door behind you, and lock it. After a couple of minutes, you finish, but don't want to go back out there. After a couple more minutes, you get up, wash your hands, and decide you are going to go back out there. You're just not going to think about it. So you open the door. No, wait, that didn't work. You try again. It's stuck. This time you ram yourself into the door thinking and hoping that it's just a little jammed. This time it flew open, and to your satisfaction, nothing is there. So you start to make your way back into your room. You're now outside your room. On your way into your room, you do your room check. You know, the one you do every time you go back into your room in the middle of the night. You step in. Look around the darkness filling your room. Check behind the door. 
look away. But wait, you could have sworn you saw something behind the door. You can hear breathing behind the door. You turn around and look at the door, and then you wake up. You sit up sweating like crazy, scared to death. You look over behind the door and see someone standing there. You must be imagining it. You close your eyes and rub them. You open them up again. It's an old woman, now floating right in front of your face, one inch away. Her face is dirty and old, rotting away. Her hair, the same. Her eyes are bloodshot and menacing. She's wearing a dirty white and gray polka-dotted nightgown. The worst part, her dirty, bloody teeth open, showing her mouth, which is letting out a terrible, menacing sound. It sounds like a constant gasping for breath, and she's leaning in, now reaching for you. She grabs you and plunges her hand deep into your chest, and pulls it back out with your heart in hand. She devours it right in front of you. You can feel yourself slipping away, but not quick enough. She plunges in again and again, pulling something else each time. She does this until you have nothing left in you. Then she grabs your head and plunges in for your eyes. But then you wake up and you look over to see a woman standing behind the door. Abandoned Library Written by Anonymous Books, books, books. There is only one library somewhere in Bristol, Massachusetts that has a very special kind of book. The kind that should never be unearthed. Fly to Bristol. Go to a local tourist booth. There will be a blonde woman with emerald green eyes and pale skin. Make sure it's her. If it's anyone else, try again later. Go up to this woman and say this. I know what you've hid. The time has come and will go. Provide me the knowledge which will sustain my health or abolish it away. After saying this, she should start to frown and shake her head. In the event that she doesn't, close your eyes and whisper, Protector of God, help me in my desperate time of need. For if you do, my life is yours. Otherwise, she will open the door to the booth and lead you through an underground tunnel system. It may seem like days, but you must linger on, or you will be trapped in the underground system, walking aimlessly for a way out. Finally, there will be a dark red door. Open it and make your way into the library. Now you're inside the abandoned library. The condition of the library will look brand new and well-conditioned. Everywhere you look, books will be stacked, layered, and placed. This is your time to begin looking. The book you are looking for is one that has the title, The Healer. Look everywhere. You have exactly two hours to look for this book before the building collapses, crushing your tiny body to dirt. If you've managed to find it, open it and browse at it carefully. If you do not find the book, an elderly man with no eyes will appear and laugh. The building will shake violently and begin to break down, crumbling to the floor. 
you will be crushed to death and surely unrecognizable. Once you've looked through the book, locate five certain illnesses, diseases, or viruses you wish to annihilate. You have only five choices, so choose wisely, for when you do, they will all be gone. After choosing, a young man will appear before you. He is the healer. Tell him your five choices. He will nod and put his hand on your shoulder, saying, My child, need not worry. Your wishes will transpire. If he says nothing, you will wake up in your room as an amnesiac. Watch as he loudly chants and makes hand gestures. As he puts his hands down, you will feel extremely sick. So sick that you can't move at all. This feeling means that your wishes have come true and that those certain sicknesses have been removed. You will never hear about anyone getting infected or dying from any of these sicknesses, but there is a catch. Although those have been taken away, you must never return to the library. If you try to, you will drop dead on sight. The coroner will find no causes of death, and your body will be taken to the depths of hell by the devil's spawn. Three AM written by Anonymous Have you ever woken up only to find there was someone staring at you? It happens to people all the time on trains, buses, planes, and in public places. In fact, studies have shown that this instinctive response is a highly evolved defense mechanism of the subconscious mind, alerting your senses to the presence of a potential threat. Many other species in the animal kingdom possess similar traits, which prove beneficial to survival. Given this, you might want to consider quickly pulling your curtains closed and shutting your door the next time you instinctively wake up at 3 a.m. That is, of course, if it's not already inside your room. Abduction Written by Anonymous It was another normal night. I spent a few hours on my computer, played on my Xbox, made food, the usual. But it wasn't until later that night that I experienced the most phenomenal thing. I was getting ready for bed. I slipped into my pajamas and tucked myself in. I lay there, resting. Thousands of these things floated through my mind. All my thoughts from the days before came back. All the weird sounds I have been hearing in my head. The static. I was thrown out of the bank the other day for setting the metal detector buzzer off, even though I had no metal on me. Or so I thought. I finally began falling asleep, my eyes shut tight and my brain on standby, until a bright white light lit up my room. I slowly opened my eyes, trying to focus on the light reflecting through my window. I had no energy to get up and check. I heard creaks. The next thing I know I was naked, tightly strapped to a very uncomfortable metal bed of some sort. I couldn't move. Two shadows lay before me. My eyes couldn't focus on the bright light 
that was shone down upon my face. I couldn't speak. My voice was gone. I tried screaming, shouting, but nothing came out. I felt a small needle pierce through the skin of my arm. Something was injected. I tried to escape, but whatever it was was restraining me. It held me down with all of its might. The light turned down, and I could finally open my eyes. In front of me was the ugliest creature I have ever seen. It was green, slimy with massive black eyes beating down to mine. It had a large head. There was three of them. Behind them was a window. I could see clouds. I saw four fingers come towards my face. Two were placed on my eyes. They were gently shut. I woke up again. Only this time I was back in my room. Was it all a dream? Was I really abducted by aliens? No. Of course not. Aliens aren't real. I hopped out of my bed, still woozy from the dream. I fell flat on my face with agony. I couldn't walk. I looked at my foot. It was all bruised. Along the soles of my feet were purple and blue. Serious bruising damage. Had I hit it off my wall during my sleep? Maybe. Until I noticed the red mark in my arm. The same place where the needle was inserted in my... Dream. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It wasn't a dream. It happened. I was... Abducted. Barney Lost Episode Written by Anonymous Hello there. I have one girl and two twins. Their favorite TV show is Barney and Friends. Until last night. See, yesterday, I was looking at my TV guide, and I saw something that caught my eye. Tonight only, a lost episode of Barney and Friends. First and only chance to see it airs at 7. Naturally, I asked my kids if they wanted to see it. Obviously, they said yes. I got the popcorn ready. They love to eat popcorn while watching Barney. When the time finally arrived, though, they ran into the living room, turned on the TV, and sat down on the couch with me. It started, the theme music playing. For starters, I could vaguely hear Drake Bell singing in the background, I found a way, during the music. I shrugged it off, assuring myself that it was just my imagination. Anyways, the episode began, like it always does, with the kids talking about something while holding a doll version of Barney. Then, poof, he comes to life, giggling like an idiot. He started speaking, and I turned it up slightly so we could hear it. Barney sounded slightly weird though, as if two people were talking at once, one with his normal voice, and another that sounded demonic. I tried to ignore it. That's when I heard Barney say, Hi kids! Today, I'm going to teach you about death! <laughs> I nearly fell out of my seat when I heard that. I wanted to turn it off, but for some reason I, I couldn't. The show kept going. Child 1. What's death, Barney? Barney. 
This is... <laughs> His face suddenly turns angry, and he grows teeth. He laughs evilly, and he bites the poor kid's head off. For some reason, my child kept watching, not affected by the obviously disturbing stuff going on. Barney then proceeds to kill all the children one by one, each time roaring. The children at this point started to run away from Barney, screaming and crying for their parents to save them. Barney just chuckled and said in his demonic voice, Mom and Dad can't help you! <laughs> and he bit the helpless children in half, eating their brains and stomachs. Then, the green girl dinosaur and the yellow dinosaur came in, apparently not noticing the dead children. Well, Barney, the green one said. What did we learn today? Barney grinned an evil grin and said directly to the camera. Remember, kiddos, don't bother locking your doors and hiding under your bed, because sooner or later, I will find you, and I will kill you all! <laughs> the rest of the episode showed a distorted picture of Barney with a blood-curdling scream. That was the last straw. I reached for the remote and turned it off. I looked to my left and I realized that my children were nowhere to be seen. Thinking that they already ran into their room, I went in there. However, I didn't find them. That's when a voice behind me said, It's too late, Steven! I've already killed them! And now, I'm going to kill you! <laughs> I turned around to see a demonic, blood-covered Barney slowly walking towards me. Even while he killed me, he still sang that damn song. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. The Back Rooms, written by Anonymous. It was approximately 12.15 when I entered the Johnson County Community Health Clinic. I was there for an appointment I had set up weeks ago. Just a routine checkup. It wasn't a new place for me. I had been there a couple of times before. However, the place had an odd nostalgic feel to it. As if it were a location for my childhood or something and I could never pinpoint exactly what this feeling was, or wherever it came from. As I walked in, an overwhelming feeling of deja vu swept over me. The hum of flickering fluorescent lights, the white tile flooring, the muted beige paint that colored the walls. I noticed that there was a TV mounted in the corner, a small flat screen that was playing a short PowerPoint slideshow on a loop of ads and events that were being held by the clinic. I passed the empty waiting room, a small area in the main room with magazines, children's playthings, a blue cushion chair, and approached the woman in the front desk. She was sitting in her bluish-gray office chair, looking at a spreadsheet on the same Windows XP desktop they'd had since 2008. There was a sign-in sheet on the counter in front of me. 
I have an appointment with Dr. Pebbins, I asked. What time? 12.30, I replied. She began typing something on her keyboard. Ah, yes, she responded. Gary Johnson? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll tell the doctor. Please fill this out. She handed me a clipboard which held a simple fill-out form. I walked back in the waiting room, took a seat, and began to fill out the form. I was about halfway done with filling in the information when I slumped back in my chair. I hadn't gotten much sleep the night prior, and I was exhausted. As I slumped back, I noticed something very peculiar. My head never hit the wall. In fact, it felt like it went in. I got up, quite frightened, and looked at the wall. Nothing. Not a single hole or dent had been made in the wall by my head. So I reached to touch the wall, and my fingers went through it. I recoiled in shock. What the hell was that? I thought I reached to touch the wall again, only to find my fingers clipped through once more. Then suddenly I lost my balance, tripped, and fell directly through the wall. I fell face first onto some dirty tan carpeting. Upon getting back up, I realized that I was in a completely different room. Well, not really a room, per se. More so a set of rooms, all of which were connected by openings. The walls were covered in gross tan-patterned wallpaper. There was also an overwhelming stench of moist carpet. I turned back around and tried to put my hand through the wall, and it wouldn't go through. Okay, that's weird, I muttered. I looked back into the room. There were no windows, no doors, nothing on the walls, other than the disgusting wallpaper, of course. It was completely empty, aside from a singular plastic blue school chair. At this point, the only thing going through my mind was fear, and the repeating thought of, I need to leave, on loop in my head. I started running through the rooms, desperately trying to find an exit, but to no avail. There was no exit. Was this my permanent location until I died? No, there had to be a way out. I wasn't just going to be left here, right? Eventually someone would notice that I was gone, but nobody did. Then in the distance I heard footsteps, but not those of humans, at least not a normal human. Alongside the footsteps was a gurgling snarl like that of an angry animal. I began to run. I ran as fast as I could from whatever the hell was approaching me. I didn't want anything to do with it. I ran for what seemed like forever, but I was always back in the same room I started in. At least, it looked like the same room. Not that I couldn't tell them apart. So I sat down, defeated. A feeling of dread filled my body as I started to cry. I was gonna die here. I'm still there. I haven't left. I've accepted my fate. In fact, I can actually hear footsteps. I wonder who that is. The Tall Man, written by Anonymous. I know of an old Romanian fairy tale 
highly unpopular even in its earliest iterations. It might be based on a particular event, or perhaps it is an extrapolation from existing Slenderman stories. The translation I'm most familiar with goes a bit like this. Once upon a time, there were twin girls, Stella and Serena. They were brave little girls and had no fear of the dark, nor of spiders and other crawling things. Where other young ladies and even young boys would cower, Stella and Serena would walk with their heads held high. They were good girls, obedient to their mother and father and to the word of God. They were the best children a mother could ask for, and this was their undoing. One day, Stella and Serena were out with their mother gathering berries from the forest. Their mother bid them to stay close to her, and they listened, as they were good children. The day was bright and clear, and even as they walked closer to the center of the forest, the light barely dimmed. It was nearly bright as noon when they found the tall man. The tall man stood in a clearing, dressed as a nobleman, all in black. Shadows lay all over him, dark as a cloudy midnight. He had many arms, all long and boneless as snakes, all sharp as swords, and they moved like worms on nails. He did not speak, but made his intentions known. Their mother tried not to listen, but she could no more disobey the tall man than she could forget how to breathe. She walked into the clearing, her daughter shortly behind her. Stella, she said, take my knife and cut a circle on the ground big enough to lie in. Stella, who was not afraid of the tall man, nor afraid of the quiver in her mother's voice, obeyed what her mother said. Serena, the mother said, take the berries and spread them in the circle and crush them until the juice stains the earth. Though Serena wondered why her mother asked her to do such a thing, she obeyed, because she was a good girl. Stella, the mother said, lie in the circle. Stella, though she worried she might stain her clothes, did as her mother said. Serena, the mother said, and bid Serena cut her sister open with the knife. Serena could not, would not. Please, her mother said, if you don't, it will be worse, so much worse. But Serena could not, and she threw the knife away and ran home crying. She hid under the bed, afraid for the first time in her life. She waited until her father came home from the fields and told him of the terrible things she had found in the woods. Her father comforted her and told her she would be safe. He went to the woods with an axe in hand, and as he commanded, she stayed by the hearth waiting for his return. After some time, she fell asleep. When she woke up, it was to the sound of knocking on her door at the darkest hour of the night. Who is there? She said. It's your father, the knocker said. I don't believe you, said Serena. It's your sister, the knocker said. It cannot be, said Serena. I am your mother said the knocker, and the door locked tight. And I told you it would be worse. And the door locked tight before her father left, fell open as if it had been left ajar, 
and her mother stepped in, her sister's head clutched in one bloody hand, her father in the other. Why? wept Serena. Because, said her mother, there is no reward for goodness. There is no respect for faith. There is nothing but cold steel teeth and scourging fire for all of us. And it's coming for you now. And the tall man slid from the fire and clenched Serena in his burning embrace. And that was the end of her. Robert the Doll, written by Anonymous. In the late 1800s, Thomas Otto and his family moved into a mansion at the corner of Eaton and Simonton Streets in Key West, Florida, now known as the Artist's House. The Ottos were known to be stern with their servants, sometimes even mistreating them. It was the treatment of one such Haitian servant that proved the twist in this story. This woman was hired to take care of their son, Robert. One day, Miss Otto supposedly witnessed her practicing black magic in their backyard and fired her. Before she left, the woman gave Robert a lifelike doll which stood three feet tall, had button for eyes, human hair believed to be Robert, and was filled with straw. Dolls that resembled children were not unheard of during this time, but this one proved to be special. Robert named the doll after himself and often dressed it in his clothes. Robert the doll became his trustworthy companion. He took it with him on shopping trips into the town. The doll had a seat at the dinner table where Robert would sneak in bites of food when his parents weren't looking. Robert would even be tucked into bed with the boy at night. Soon this innocent relationship took on a strange nature. Soon after, Robert chose to be referred by his middle name, Jean. After being scolded by his mother, he told her that Robert was the doll's name, not his. Jean was often heard in his toy room, having conversations with Robert. Jean could say something in his childish manner, and responses could be heard in a much lower voice. Sometimes Jean would become very agitated, worrying the servants and his mother. She would, on occasion, burst in to find her son cowering in a corner while Robert sat perched in a chair, or on the bed glaring at him. This was only the beginning. Household objects would be found thrown across the room. Jean's toys turned up mutilated, and giggling could be heard. Whenever these unusual acts took place, Jean always said, Robert did it. The boy took the punishment, but always insisted that the blame was Robert's. As the mischief grew, more and more servants took their leave, as new ones were hired. The Otto's relatives felt it was time to do something. With the recommendation of a great aunt, Jean's parents removed Robert from his care and placed him in a box in the attic. This is where he resided for many years. After the death of his father, Jean was willed his boyhood home. He decided to live in the Victorian mansion with his new wife. Jean had become an artist and felt the house was spacious and would provide a place for him to paint. He went to the attic and dusted off his childhood toy. He became attached to the doll despite his wife's displeasure. 
Jean would take the doll along with them everywhere they went. He even sat in his favorite little chair while Jean and his wife slept nearby. The turret room became Robert's domain after Miss Otto moved him back to the attic. Their marriage slowly became sour until Miss Otto supposedly went insane and died of unknown reasons. Jean followed soon behind. Robert supposedly attacked people, sometimes locking them in the attic. People who passed by claimed to hear evil laughter coming from the turret room. For some time, Robert remained in the empty house by himself until a new family purchased the mansion and restored it. The doll was once again moved to the attic. This pleased it as much as the last time. The doll was often found throughout the house. On one certain night, Robert was found at the foot of the owner's bed, giggling with a kitchen knife in his hand. This was enough to send them fleeing from the home. Robert was later moved to the East Martello Museum in Key West, where he sits perched in a glass box. Despite his new living quarters, the doll is believed to not have given up his menacing ways. Visitors and employees claim that they've seen the doll move. His eyes have been known to turn into a scowl. One employee cleaned Robert, turned off all the lights, and left for the night. The next day, he returned to find lights on, and Robert sitting in a different position than the night before, and a fresh layer of dust on his shoes. Some say he'll even curse you. If you want to take a picture of him, you must ask politely. He'll tilt his head in permission. However, if he doesn't and you take the picture anyways, a curse will befall upon you and anyone who accompanied you to the museum. The same will happen to you if you make fun of him. To this day, Robert remains at the East Martello Museum in a sailor suit, clutching his stuffed lion, continuing his menacing ways. This episode is brought to you by Buffalo Trace Distillery. Powerful yet smooth. Contained but never tame. Proudly going their own way, but never going alone. This is the spirit inside Buffalo Trace bourbon. Made at Buffalo Trace Distillery, the world's most award-winning distillery. Buffalo Trace is always perfectly untamed. Distilled, aged, and bottled by Buffalo Trace Distillery, Franklin County, Kentucky. 90 proof, 45% alcohol by volume. Learn more at buffalotracedistillery.com. Please drink responsibly. The Pigman of Northfield, written by William Dalphine. My family lived in Vermont for a number of years, in a small town called Northfield South, Montepiler. There's a local legend in Northfield, of a thing known as the Pigman. The story has multiple versions, as most do, but there are some parts that are always the same. Back in 1951, the night before Halloween, this 17-year-old kid named Sam Harris went out on his own with a basket of eggs to cause some mischief. Nobody knows exactly what happened to him just that he never came home and was never found. Years later, some high school kids were out drinking behind the school one night during a dance when this thing came walking out of the woods on two human legs. It was naked, covered in white hair, and was wearing a hollowed out pig's head like a grotesque mask. Naturally, the kids tore out of there and went and told people. Word spread 
and some farmer admitted he'd seen a figure matching that description digging around his garbage one night. Some pigs had also gone missing recently. More sightings were made of the Pigman, as it came to be known, but many times the claims were just kids wanting to get attention. Now, whether the thing is Sam Harris or this thing ate Sam Harris, nobody in town knows for sure, but what they do know is that it isn't afraid of people and it really likes to eat meat. There's a place just outside of Northfield known as the Devil's Washbowl with a river and waterfall and a number of caves. After more sightings of the pig man were made out by the washbowl, some people went investigating and found that one cave in particular. It was littered with animal bones, some of which belonged to pigs. It got around that they found the lair of the pig man, and it became popular for teens to go out to the devil's washbowl at night and try to catch a sight of him. My sister and a couple of her friends went out to the devil's washbowl their senior year. They took sleeping bags and flashlights and all the gear you'd take to go camping. I wasn't there to give a first-hand account of what transpired. I was only eight at the time. I can only tell you what was told to me. There were six or eight of them, depending on who you ask. All couples. They picked a number of caves, one for each pair. My sister and her boyfriend were in their cave. She was rolling out their sleeping bags and he was trying to start a fire when they heard some shouts and then screaming from one of the other caves. When they got there, the girl was curled up in a ball in the farthest corner of the cave, and her boyfriend was nowhere to be found. She told them that the pig man had come, trudging into their cave, completely undaunted by their presence. The guy had started shouting at it, both to drive it away and to get the other's attention. The pigman casually picked up a large rock and struck the guy on the side of the head with it, knocking him unconscious. It picked him up, slung him over its shoulder, and shambled out of the cave just moments before the rest arrived. Nobody had seen it exit the cave, nor seen signs of it at all. They did find the rock laying on the cave floor with blood on it, and a bare footprint, and some soft creek mud outside. The girls all drove into town and went straight to the police. The remaining boys, whether it was two or three of them, grabbed flashlights and makeshift weapons and scoured the woods around the area. The footprints disappeared at the edge of the road and they lost the trail there. Search parties were set up. Police and canine units in a big coordinated effort including several other adjoining township police forces. A couple of days later, some articles of the guy's clothes were found by a search dog. They had been left torn and scattered in an abandoned farmhouse a town over. The missing teen's photo was put up in the area, and one guy came forward. He said that he'd awakened the other night to the sound of someone lurking outside his house. He checked out his kitchen window, and there was someone rummaging through the trash can by his garage. The person was only wearing a faded and ripped up pair of jeans. When the man hit the porch light, the intruder had looked up, and it had looked just like the kid in the photo. The only difference was that his body was covered with white hair, and his eyes looked kind of hollow.
The Scariest Video Game Ever Written by Anonymous I just finished playing one of the scariest video games ever. Now, hear me out before saying anything. I don't normally get scared of video games or movies. I've played many survival horror games and have seen many horror movies in my day. The one thing that made me just a tiny bit scared were some parts of Penumbrum and Condemned. Amnesia was pretty good. Everything else was just boring. This game was different. Very different. You aren't even given any sort of backstory to this game at all. As soon as you press play, it throws you right into the game. However, I was able to piece together what the story basically is. However, I was able to piece together what the story basically is. Finally beating this game. Apparently, you're a madman. We're never given the name, but you can guess what it is if you pay attention to the title screen. For some reason, you escape from whatever mental hospital room you were hiding in. Now, the very hard state of your mind has transformed the halls of that hospital into nothing but a pitch black maze, with the only light being the walls, which glow a deathly blue. Your character is apparently some type of mad cannibal that you can barely control. You can force him to turn corners in the creepy hallway, but not much else can be done. Your character seems to grab anything and try to eat it. Whatever is in front of him is thrown into his mouth and he munches it down. While playing the game, you're being chased by four hideous and disgusting scary ghost monsters. You cannot hurt them at all, and to come even close to one is instant death, in which the ghost latches onto you and rips you inside out. All while you hear the horrible noise of your body being torn. You can, however, eat some odd objects hidden in the maze, after which your character goes into an even more unstable state. You can literally eat the ghost monsters. Your character runs right up to them and devours them, only leaving their eyes. There aren't any words to describe how horrific and terrifying this game is and I don't want to spoil the surprises for you. Just go ahead and try it for yourself. Google the word Pac-Man, and you'll find it on the first search. The Feeling, written by Anonymous. Go to any mirror and put your hand against the glass. Don't worry, nothing will grab you. Wait. Sometimes it takes half a day. Sometimes it takes a moment. But you'll yank your hand away when you feel it. Worms or centipedes? Who knows? All pressed and tight like there's no more room on that side. Wiggling against your skin. When you pull back, the glass is the same, and you'll be unharmed. But now you know, it's there. The Elevator Ritual Written by 
Spooky Nightmare. This game appears to originate on a Korean website some may recognize as the source of a particular comic that pops up every few months or so on sites like Reddit. Unfortunately, I don't speak Korean, so working off the rough translation found here, I've tried to tease out a clearer vision of the rules and instructions. It's unclear whether the other world in which the elevator delivers you is the shadow side referred to by Fable Forge in this various games and rituals, or whether it's something else. Regardless as to what it may or may not be, however, as always, play at your own risk. Players. One principle. Requirements. One building. At least 10 stories high with an elevator. All three of these conditions must be met in order for the game to proceed. Instructions. Venturing out. Enter your chosen building and get into the elevator on the first floor alone. Do not proceed if anyone else is in the elevator with you. Press the button for the fourth floor. When the elevator reaches the fourth floor, do not get out. Instead, remain in the elevator and press the button for the second floor. When you reach the second floor, remain in the elevator and press the button for the sixth floor. When you reach the sixth floor, remain in the elevator and press the button for the second floor. When you reach the second floor, remain in the elevator and press the button for the tenth floor. When you reach the tenth floor, remain in the elevator and press the button for the fifth floor. When you reach the fifth floor, a young woman may enter the elevator. Do not look at her. Do not speak to her. She is not what she seems. Press the button for the first floor. If the elevator begins ascending to the tenth floor instead of descending to the first, you may proceed. If the elevator descends to the first floor, exit as soon as the doors open. Do not look back. Do not speak. If you reach the 10th floor, you may either choose to get off the elevator or to stay on it. If you choose to get off, and if the woman entered the elevator on the 5th floor, she will ask you, Where are you going? Do not answer her. Do not look at her. You will know whether you have arrived at the other world by one indication and that one indication only. The only person present in it is you. The return trip. If you choose to stay on the elevator at the 10th floor, press the button for the first floor. If it doesn't work, keep pressing it until it finally does. When the elevator reaches the first floor, exit as soon as the doors open. Do not look back. Do not speak. If you choose to exit the elevator at the 10th floor, you must use the same elevator to return as the one in which you arrived. When you enter the elevator, press the buttons in the same order you did in step 2 through 8 of venturing out. You should finish at the 5th floor. When you reach the 5th floor, press the button for the 1st floor. The elevator will again begin to ascend to the 10th floor. 
press any other floors button to cancel the ascension. You must press the button you use to cancel the ascension before you reach the 10th floor. After you reach the first floor, check your surroundings carefully. If anything seems off, even the smallest detail, do not exit the elevator. If you detect something wrong, repeat step two until your surroundings look as they should. Once you are confident you have returned to your own world, you may safely exit the elevator. Additional notes. Should you reach the other world, the floor onto which you will emerge will look almost identical to the one from your own world, save for two things. All the lights will be off, and the only thing you will be able to see from the windows is a red cross in the distance. Some say that electronic device, mobile phones, cameras, mp3 players, etc. don't work in the other world. Others say they do. Getting back to your own world may be more difficult than it seems. You may become disoriented and forget which elevator in which you arrived. The elevator may seem to get further and further away from you as you walk towards it. Be vigilant and keep your wits about you. If at any point during the ritual you faint, pass out, or otherwise lose consciousness, you will likely wake up in your own home. However, be sure to carefully examine your surroundings. Upon waking up, the home to which you have been returned may not be the one you left when you first set out to attempt this ritual. Concerning the woman on the fifth floor, do not speak to her. Do not look at her. If you do, she may decide to keep you for her own. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode. Peppa Pig. Why? Written by Anonymous. One day, I was with my brother and I asked him, Hey, how about we watch Peppa Pig? He said yes, because we used to love Peppa Pig as kids. The good thing is, is that it's still on TV. But we never got to see the new episodes, because we got to new things like Dora the Explorer, Spongebob, and Thomas the Tank Engine. So we went to a DVD store, looking for some Peppa Pig DVDs, but we couldn't find any. But luckily, we did. But the case looked dusty, and there was a sticker labeled, Peppa Pig, Lost Episode. We then thought to ourselves, wow, an episode we haven't seen. So we bought it. Yet we were still confused. I asked my brother, how could there be a Peppa Pig episode like this? Would it be scary? He replied, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out.
So we went home, put the disc into the DVD player, and a weird Nick Jr. logo came on. Nick was watching TV and eating popcorn, with Jr. sharing along. It was silent, and stayed on for about a minute. After that, the intro started. But it was very odd. The sky was black. The music was playing in reverse. The title card with the words Peppa Pig was in blood, red, and Peppa looked normal. And it just stayed there. Then the episode started. The episode was just called Why. The house was on fire. Realistic fire. The camera panned into the living room, which gets worse. George, Mummy, and Daddy Pig all look frightened. Then a brick from the ceiling hit George's neck and drew blood. My brother vomited on the floor, thinking George was about to get decapitated, but we kept going. It then cut to the outdoors. Then shockingly, the house crumbled down. There were no signs of fire trucks or ambulances during this. The decapitated head of George, Mummy, and Daddy Pig were laid near the buildings. Oh god. Then it cut to a hill with, oh my god, Peppa Pig. She looked demented. It went to static for a good 10 seconds. She then appeared on screen in tears. Her dress was gray. Her eyes were missing. She was covered in blood and was crying. We felt really bad for Peppa. The picture looked like it was from MS Paint. Then Peppa began to say the most disturbing thing ever. Why? Why did you not watch another episode of me? Thanks to you, my family's dead. Can't you see that I'm suffering? Well, someday, you'll feel more remorseful. The video ended there. We took the disc out and burned it. We had nightmares from this. So after that, I couldn't take it anymore, and I put all of my Peppa Pig stuff in a bin, and since now, I never watched another episode of Peppa Pig again. So the next time you come across this episode, don't watch it. Watch something else. It's for your own good. The NOAA has discovered a species of humanoids living in our oceans, written by Anonymous. I know someone that works for the NOAA. The disclosure rumors are 100% true, and the species in question is aquatic. I don't expect anyone to believe me, and that's fine. I know a lot of BS gets exposed on the internet. I'm just sharing a story from a few weeks ago that I feel is relevant due to all the recent disclosure talk. I have a college friend that landed a job working for the NOAA in a pretty high capacity. I won't say more than that to protect their privacy. Around the holidays, me and said friend were catching up, and they shifted the topic to aliens. This friend is very level-headed, and we usually don't talk about stuff like that. It's mostly family talk and work. They asked if I believed in aliens, to which I replied, I'd like to, but we simply don't have enough evidence. Their expression perked up, and they said, I'm going to tell you something, 
and I want you to take me absolutely seriously. Okay, where is this going? I thought. They never seemed so intense in a conversation before. So I braced for some kind of huge personal reveal or something. But they started talking about the Russian submarine incident that happened on July 1st, 2019, where supposedly a fire broke out on board a nuclear-powered Russian sub and killed nearly everyone on board. According to reports from state-controlled Russian news services, 14 sailors died in the country's territorial waters that day, including seven captains of the first tank and two so-called heroes of Russia, as a result of inhaling combustion products on board and a research submersible vehicle designed for studying the sea floor and the bottom of the world ocean in the interest of the Russian Navy. Allegedly, a fire broke out during bathmetric measurements after which it was extinguished thanks to the self-sacrificing actions of the team, or so we were told. The incident is believed to have occurred off Russia's northern shore in the Barents Sea on that date. The submarine was later towed to the Russian North Fleet headquarters in Severomark and an investigation began. My friend said that the submarine fire tale was nothing more than a cover story that Putin came up with in order to cover up what really happened. What actually happened is quite different than what was reported. The sub was apparently investigating an underwater base that is controlled by non-human entities. They got too close, and the sub was destroyed by these beings. My friend went on to detail how most world governments are aware of their presence, yet keep it undisclosed because of the ramifications to society it may have. Also, because we can't do anything to stop the entities, or to forcefully reveal them, they told me that the NOAA has had thousands of incidents of contact with these underwater beings and that it's fairly common knowledge amongst certain departments than roles in the organization. They said they have witnessed video, audio, and physical evidence of these beings residing under our oceans. But it is kept under tight wraps by senior officials and whatever government sector controls the NOAA. The friends said that the recent disclosure buzz is legit and had been carefully planned. They said they don't know exactly what details will be provided to the public, but that in general, it will be made known that there are other beings occupying our planet and that they are not from another planet, but have been here long before us. They also said these beings actively keep us out of certain parts of the ocean. Apparently. Their technology is advanced beyond anything we could come up with, and able to either withstand or negate the insurmountable pressure and extreme ocean depths. They are able to freely enter and exit the water in their craft without displacing or disturbing it physically. They've been captured multiple times on sonar, traveling underwater at speeds that are impossible as far as human technology goes, or marine biology is concerned. My friend also mentioned a place called Lake Vostok, and said a very large base was discovered there under the ice and that Russians have total control over the operation there. They also detailed that the entities have been witnessed outside of any craft, swimming in the ocean freely by submersible surveillance devices, individual divers, and cameras positioned at the bottom of oil rig platforms. They are humanoid and resemble what most people would call the typical gray alien, complete with oversized heads large dark eyes, no visible ears, and small mouths. How they breathe and move underwater is presently unknown. That's pretty much most of what he told me. 
My friend didn't provide a date for disclosure. They just said it will definitely be in 2023, according to what they've been hearing. Apparently, this is going to be a worldwide disclosure, not a US-specific thing. And whenever we are told, one thing is for certain. It's going to change everything. I Bought a Working Time Machine Written by Chris Fox All of my life, I've heard people say we are heading into a new utopian age of progression and enlightenment. While I really wanted to believe that to be true, with the things I've seen going on in this world, I've had to remain skeptical. But then I saw the future for myself, my glimpse of what's to come and the experiences leading up to it. It started with my unexpected accusation of a mundane item. The magazine was hidden among the oldest paperbacks I had bought at the used bookstore. Strange things and oddities. The cover proclaimed in a bright green font with October of 1997 printed underneath it. Behind the text, an alien creature stared back at me, grinning. I gave the magazine a quick flip through. Where did this come from? I wondered. I certainly didn't recall seeing the cashier put this item in the box. And the thing was an immaculate condition for being 20 years old. I gave it another quick look, then tossed the periodical onto the coffee table before going on about my business. Later that evening, I was in a funk of boredom and nothing was helping, so I turned on the TV. I scanned through the channels trying to find something worth watching, but after a bit, I just turned it off, giving up. There wasn't a damn thing worth watching on. I looked down at the coffee table and saw the magazine lying there, its bright green title shining like a beacon. Might as well see what's going on back in good old 1997, I said picking it up. Over the next hour, I was enveloped in the paranormal world two decades ago. One very interesting article involved the account of a woman's sexual encounter with an alien. Probably the one from the cover, I said to myself smiling. There were many other interesting articles and columns. Then when I got to the back, I found a classified section. It advertised a good variety of strange things such as voodoo dolls and psychic readings. But one ad in particular caught my eye. Travel through time, read the headline. The listing informed me that it was the low price of $30. I could have my very own time traveling device. I don't know what possessed me, but I went and got my checkbook. I wrote out a check for the amount, addressed and stamped the envelope, then sealed the check inside. I mailed it the next day and immediately forgot about it. One afternoon about six weeks later, I came home from work to find a shoebox sized package sitting at my door. I didn't think I was expecting anything, and when I looked closer, I didn't recognize the shipper's address. I unlocked my door, picked up the box, and went inside. I sat the box on the coffee table and sliced open the tape with a pair of scissors. Inside was a smaller box labeled Chrono Industries Model TTD-005. Upon opening it, I found an instruction booklet and a small electronic device. Realization dawned. It was my time travel device. I'll admit it, I never assumed to receive anything. But here it was, the device, which was roughly the size of a walkie-talkie, had a full keyboard, LED display, and belt clip on the back. 
On the top of the TTD were a power switch and two buttons, labeled Start and Recall. For a time machine, the damn things seemed pretty simple. I opened the user manual. After a few minutes of reading, I had the gist of the device's operation. No time like the present, I said switching the TTD on. The screen lit up with blue characters that displayed the current date and time, with no visible antenna. I wondered how or where the device received the information, but who was I to question such technology? I thought for a moment about where, or rather when, I would go first. I decided to start small, and entered a destination three days in the past. Then I hit start. I honestly didn't know what to expect. The novelty of the thing alone was worth the 30 bucks I had spent on it. But after pushing the start button, and nothing happening, I'll admit it, I was a little disappointed. The thing didn't even beep for God's sake. Oh well, I said to the device. At least you kept me entertained for half an hour. Carrying the TTD with me, I went over to my desk and turned on the computer. I figured I might as well see what kind of craziness was going on in the world. I opened my favorite news webpage and began scrolling through the headlines. Even though this had been my first visit to the site that day, the headlines all looked so familiar, and an overwhelming sense of deja vu hit me. My eyes fell on the device sitting on the desk. No way, I said in disbelief. It can't be. I scrolled back to the top of the page and read the date. If I'd been looking in a mirror, I'm sure I would have seen that the color had drained from my face. The date showed the 5th of the month, or I should have said the 8th. With a shaking hand, I reached for the TTD and hit recall. Once again, there was no sound, no sense of activity, but the computer was now off. I turned it on and checked the news headlines. They were now different, and the date up on top read the 8th. As impossible as it was to comprehend, I had just traveled through time. An hour later, I sat on my couch staring at the TTD as it sat like a 10-ton weight on my coffee table. The implications of what had just happened to me were massive. This was supposed to be a joke. I ordered the thing out of a 20-year-old paranormal magazine for crying out loud. But yet, I saw what I saw. I grabbed the device and left the apartment. There was a park about a block from my building and I began walking in its direction. I wanted to be completely sure of the device's legitimacy, and I had an idea on how to test it. I entered the park and walked around a bit before finding what I was looking for. It was a medium-sized pecan tree, and I pulled out my phone and took a picture of it. Then taking the TTD off my belt, I set it for five years in the past and hit start. The change happened so fast that my brain could barely process it. One moment the tree was one size, the next, it was smaller. I took a picture and then hit recall. I took one more look at the now larger tree, then returned to my apartment. I downloaded both pictures to my computer and opened them side by side. At first glance, someone looking at the pictures wouldn't notice much out of the ordinary, if anything. They would probably think it was nothing more than a couple of pictures of the same tree, taken years apart. But the timestamps told a different story. They showed the pictures were taken less than a minute apart, which was just the assurance I needed to know that the device was the real deal. I thought about the possibilities the TTD could open up for me. I could correct past mistakes I've made, or even make myself rich 1,000 times over. 
Anything was possible, and it would be so easy, but I knew I could never do any of those things. My parents had raised me with morals, and using the TTD for personal gain would be going against everything they had taught me, but I still felt like there was a reason for me having this device. In the end, I decided the best way for me to use the TTD was not to use it at all, but before I retired the device for good, I would use it one last time. I had to see the future. I grabbed the TTD and headed out the door. I wanted to know where we were headed, and if it was in the right or wrong direction, and in my hand was the means to do so. I went back to the park. I was planning to go at least 10 years into the future, and there was no telling what could change in that amount of time. I didn't want to risk appearing or whatever in the wrong place, so the park seemed like the safest solution. After finding a nice wide open area, I set the TTD for today's date and time, but 10 years from now. Here goes nothing, I said pushing the start button. The park's calm green beauty had been replaced by a barren landscape surrounded by the ruins of the burnt out city. I looked around in awestruck, horror, as I walked to where the entrance of the park used to be, and once on the street, the real terror began. Wrecked and abandoned cars filled the streets, and everywhere I look were the rotted corpses of human beings hanging from inverted metal crosses. Satanic looking symbols were everywhere, and instead of the usual sounds of the city, I could only hear the tortured screams of people all around me. What happened here? I wondered as I took in my horrific surroundings. Up ahead, movement caught my eye. Coming around a corner, were a group of about eight people followed by two demonic looking creatures. The people were all shackled to one another, and most of them had ragged out and bloody gashes torn from their upper bodies, where they had been flayed by their demonic guards. This was just too much, and I decided it was time to go. I turned and ran back to the park. Once there, I bent over and vomited, and when I was finished, I pushed recall. While I was relieved to see everything back to normal, I couldn't help feel but utter despair from the forbidden knowledge I now possessed. I returned to my apartment and removed the TTD from my belt. I looked at it for a long time before opening the back and removing the batteries, and then I destroyed the damn thing. I know I shouldn't have blamed the device for what it had shown me, but I just didn't want it around anymore. Since that day, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the future and what I saw. I wish that I could say we can all band together and save the world, but I feel that based on the events currently unfolding, there is no way to change what is coming. But at least I can give you all a heads up. Courage the Cowardly Dog Lost Episode Written by Anonymous Who doesn't remember the show Courage the Cowardly Dog? The show about the pink dog and his elderly owners who always ran into monsters and other creepy stuff. It scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, although I always loved watching it. The show was sadly cancelled back in 02. A few weeks ago, I was flipping through the channels at 4am. I'm an insomniac, so obviously I was having trouble sleeping. I was happy to see that Courage was on Cartoon Network, so I put it on. Awesome. 
The Demon in the Mattress episode. I always love this one. After watching the episode and experiencing nostalgia, another episode came on, but for some reason the opening of the show was in black and white and grainy, kind of like an old film, but it was completely silent. After the opening titles, the show came on normally. It began with Courage sitting in the basement, lying in a pool of something that looked like blood. It then cut to Eustace at the top of the staircase, slamming the door and saying his usual stupid dog line. I was pretty sure I had never seen this one, and I was pretty shocked to see the blood. Courage's face looked severely depressed as he just lied there on the floor. The sound of glass breaking was heard upstairs, and it then cut to Muriel sitting in her rocking chair with Eustace on top of her strangling her. I felt extremely uncomfortable at this point. The screen cut out to black and Muriel's piercing scream was heard. Total blackness for a moment. It then cut back into a hospital room. Lying in the bed was Muriel, in a coma-like state. No audio was playing at all. Suddenly, Eustace appeared aside of her and gave her an evil and menacing look towards me until grabbing the oxygen tube, keeping Muriel alive and snapping it in half. The only sound heard was a heart rate monitor indicating her heart had stopped and that she was dead. Eustace just suddenly disappeared, and Muriel's lifeless body turned into a pile of rotting meat. The blackness appeared again, and the sound of static was heard for a brief moment, until it cut to courage in a graveyard in the rain, digging a grave that said Muriel Baggy on it. From out of nowhere, he picked up the pile of rotting meat and dumped it into the hole that he dug in the ground and then covered it back up with dirt. He howled up at the moon above him. The scene faded out into black and the end credits played normally. Nothing has been the same since then. My insomnia is worse than ever and I haven't been able to sleep at all since. Five Years, written by Mark Tozzi. Nineteen seventy-eight, with headlights off and through the rain-lashed windscreen and blackness of the night, Don didn't see the tree across his side of the road until it was nearly upon him. He put his foot hard on the brake and instinctively yanked the steering wheel, sending the car fishtailing until it spun out of his control. He continued to wrestle with the wheel, but couldn't even see where the road was anymore. Finally, the tire caught on the edge of the ditch. As Don braced for impact, he found himself back in his rusty old Ford with Christine, and in the background, the stereo pumping out a tune from their special road trip cassette. A loud crunch catapulted him forward, and in a blink, jolted him back into the darkness again. He unclenched his hands from the steering wheel, switched off the engine, and turned to look over his shoulder. The headlights that had been on him for the last 40 kilometers slowly came to a halt, and the engine quieted to a gentle hum, and then nothing but night. The only sounds Don could hear were the relentless thrashing of the rain and his own labyrinth breathing. He removed the seatbelt and threw open the driver's side door. The smell of the night rushed at him, and the rain felt intensely hard and cold as he began to sprint into darkness. 
There was no way to know where he was or where he was heading. Initially, his only thoughts had been to drive away his staring at the ceiling insomnia. Now, though it was simply to get away from this mysterious black vehicle that had already rammed him twice from behind and relentlessly pursued him along rain-drenched roads. For the first time he could remember, he began to cry, not in fear for his life, but the solitude he felt at that exact moment. There was nobody out there that would care if he was dead or alive. As he ran, Don considered the vehicle that had slammed into him, unidentifiable and black with tinted windows. It had no plates, and the front of the car sported a huge snarling grill. In blind fear, he had put his foot down and hoped the pursuer would eventually give up the chase. Exhausted, he stopped running and climbed over a barrier into the foliage on the embankment. He used the branches and trunks of the trees to traverse down to the bottom and sat behind one of the larger ones. The coldness returned as he watched small wisps of his breath disappeared into the void. The rumble of an engine came into earshot, but this time no headlights to give away its location. His hunter had gotten serious now. The games were over. Don nestled into the back of the tree as though trying to drive his way through the bark. He inhaled deeply and held his breath in case the condensation clouds gave him away. As he heard a car door open, there was a moment of clarity that manifested itself like a kick in the guts. Momentarily, he thought he might vomit and put one hand on his mouth and closed his eyes. As if to validate the epiphany, his mind threw him back into the old Ford again with Christine. With her seatbelt off and leaning over the dashboard, she snorted coke, flicked her head back, and smiled before turning the rearview mirror into herself to wipe the dust from her nose. Christine sprinkled the last of the powder across her wrist and held it out for him. And as Don leaned in, the car drifted lanes and collided with the truck that had been approaching at speed. He could still remember the explosion of noise and the sound of metal on metal as the vehicles momentarily melded together, and then Christine began to fly. Her body was tossed around like a rag doll as the car flipped over, and shards of glass showered everywhere as her head was sent violently through the windscreen. So vividly, he remembered her dead eyes and her bloody broken face. The police found a half-empty six-pack on the truck driver's passenger seat. Don told the police the car came out of nowhere, and knocked them off the road. It was too easy. The guy was sent down for five years in 1975. Perhaps with parole, it must be him. Since Christine died, he had alienated himself from everyone, not feeling worthy or capable of companionship. The guilt and the grief had almost devoured him, and every day was an effort. Sometimes, he wished he had told the truth just for some closure. As he sat behind the tree in this cold and wet clothes, he contemplated how long he would keep running. The guy had been waiting for him for three years to get his revenge. He wasn't going to let up, but perhaps if he saw the grief and remorse in his eyes, there might be another way. Hey! He called out. I'm coming up to talk! He scrambled up the side of the embankment and found two shiny black boots waiting for him. The silver skull on each tip 
was the last thing Don saw as an iron bar smashed into the side of his face. The guy bent down to grip Don's collar and then dragged him along the wet tarmac. He opened the boot of his car and bundled him next to another body. After closing it, he lit a cigarette and drove off into the darkness to find his next victim. Apartment 1306 Written by Anonymous There's an apartment below mine on the 13th floor, the 6th unit at the end of the hall on the left. I know apartment buildings, hotels, and whatnot. I tried to avoid the truth about the 13th floor, so technically, it's apartment 1406, but I'd rather stick to the truth. You see, up until about two months ago, that place wasn't for rent, from what I knew. But then, a month later, I had heard someone moved in. I can't say whether I was excited or not, I just hoped they wouldn't be partiers because I enjoy my sleep. Then, one month later, things started to take a turn. I had heard some noise coming from below, like shuffling around. Two days later, there was more noise, like banging and muffled thumps. One day later, I start to hear yelling. I was reluctant to call the police or the owner of the building, thinking it was a one-time thing since there hadn't been any problems since they first moved in. I was wrong. About a week had passed, and no noises were coming from below, so I had finally thought it was over. Wrong again. At about 3.28 in the morning, I hear a scream and a loud thumping noise. Man, I was pissed. I headed out of my door, and when I took the first step out of the door, I heard more screaming. It sounded like a woman, but I didn't care at the moment. I just stormed off down the hallway to the exit stairs, and when I got to the apartment, I banged as loud as I could on the door. Not three seconds later, on the other side of the door, someone bangs on the door back at me. I grew increasingly angry and kicked the door with my foot, hard and loud. The whole floor probably heard me, but I didn't care. The same thing happens, but this time, the person bangs twice. I tried negotiating with whoever was on the other side by saying, keep it down or I'm calling the police. As soon as I finished my sentence, there was a scratching on the other side of the door. Then I hear the sound of a woman crying. I gave up. I'm about to leave when my bare foot stepped in something wet and warm. I looked down and what I saw changed my view of horror forever. What I saw was a deep crimson red pool of blood oozing out from underneath the door. I stood there, paralyzed in fear. It was just leaking from underneath. The sound of scratching filled my ears, but my brain failed to acknowledge it. Then I got a burst of energy and I decided to use it wisely by charging up the exit stairs, down my hallway and back into the safety of my apartment. I didn't get any sleep that night. All I hear from downstairs are some muffled thumps. The next morning, I decided to call the owner to notify him of the night before and that I'm calling the police. I tell him of the noise and screaming, but not of the blood. I don't know why, but it seemed a little too unreal. I guess that's the word. But when I finish, 
What he tells me next makes the blood look like a normal occurrence that night. He said, but that unit has been vacant ever since the building was built. I just stood there holding the phone, once again, fear gripping me and unable to move. He asks if I'm there. It's probably just the pipes, man. He says casually and hangs up. These events mentioned here happened in 2002. It's been 20 years now, and I have since moved away. From what I know, there was a fire that destroyed half of the building and made it uninhabitable. The news said it started in a unit, but they didn't release the number. I already knew which one it was. The building was torn down and they built a park for the kids in its place. You know, sometimes, I can still hear the screaming whenever I drive by there at night. Seven Foot Man, written by Dave. I don't exactly remember why I keep going back there. Letchworth Village, I I don't know if it was the thrill of being someplace rumored to be haunted or maybe something was taking me back. Either way, what I saw couldn't be erased from my memory, so it doesn't matter. It was around early 2009. The old brick building with vines growing off the sides were just 30 feet away from me. I climbed out of the bush I was hiding in and got closer. There might have been maybe four of us there, including me. We went back maybe three nights a week. When we weren't there, it's all we ever talked about. I wasn't exactly looking for anything, but as I said before, I don't exactly know why we keep going back. Ignoring the no trespassing sign, I saw an open door. I don't think we ever broke in. We only enter where a door or window was open. Nonetheless, I walked inside. It smelled of illness, sadness, and death. I clicked on my flashlight and pointed it at the hallway. As expected, the cracked tile on the wall and the floor reflected the light coming from the flashlight. My friends followed suit. Usually, we'll split up. Except this time was a bit different. I wandered off on my own. I don't usually do this unless I want to go find something or do something on my own. But I felt that I should be alone at this time. This place was like a maze. Eventually, I realized that I was alone. I called out to my friends, but they didn't hear me, so I kept walking. Using the flashlight as my only light source, I made it through the darkened hallway. I didn't recognize it. I clicked off the flashlight and started walking. Something made a noise behind me, and I turned around. All I saw was a window covered up by the trees that surrounded the building. As I was walking down the hallway, my flashlight still off, I thought I heard something behind me. I didn't see what was there, although I wish I did. After about 15 seconds, I, I heard something call me by my name. Dave! I started running down the hall. I clicked on my flashlight and saw my friend. I'll call him Matt. Matt looked really scared. He said, Didn't you see what was behind you? I immediately turned around, but saw nothing. No. What was there? I replied. I don't exactly remember what Matt said, but what I remember is that 
Whatever was walking behind me was about seven feet tall, had no arms, bent back legs, and piercing white eyes. Since it was completely dark, and the only real light was coming from the window at the opposite end of the hall, we never actually knew what it looked like. It could have had a face or clothes. What I find to be the weirdest part of this story is what happened when I was driving home. I had been driving for about 10 minutes, listening to the radio. It was almost 2 in the morning, and all of a sudden, the radio cut out. When it did, I heard a deep voice. I don't know if this was the seven-foot man or something else haunting the building. The voice I heard was so low quality, I couldn't hear what it said. The radio came back on afterwards. The seven-foot man still remains a mystery. I never went back there. My friends did. They never saw it or any signs of it. But every time they come home, their radio cuts out and the deep voice comes back. Nobody knows what it wants. Sometimes I see it out my window, but as soon as I focus, it's gone. Maybe one day I'll know what it is. But for now, it's only a mystery. Twenty Twenty Nickelodeon Hijacking Written by Diamond Pup The Story Nickelodeon The best channel on TV and home of the best cartoon characters. However, this went belly up pretty fast. I was watching Nickelodeon through my neighbor's cable, and I noticed something off with the channel. When the Nickelodeon fish came in, it was in grayscale. It had the angriest look on its face. Then it went belly up like a dead fish. Then the Nickelodeon on its side changed into Neil Dolkin, written in blood. I began getting worried, since there were never any deaths depicted on Nickelodeon, and it scared me that Neil Dolkin is Nickelodeon backwards. Either way, SpongeBob SquarePants came on, but something was fishy, and I'm not referring to the gray Nick fish. For instance, SpongeBob maintained a blank look through the entire intro, and Patchy looked depressed. Then Patchy said, Hello, viewer. If you're watching this, Nickelodeon has been hijacked. You need to stop watching for your sake. Was he talking to me? It seems so. All the characters had angry faces like the fish had. Then they smashed the Nickelodeon logo to bits. I thought the break was over when a piece of the K flew straight into the camera. It then went to a blank area with a blood red color and the letters looked like they have been worn down. Then it showed the Nick characters all together saying, Hello viewer, Nickelodeon will soon be gone. We're sorry. There's nothing we can do about this hijacking. Then it cut to a bunch of dismembered characters and the same destroyed letters from before. I saw SpongeBob's eyes and legs, cat dog's midsection and heads, the loud family's heads, arms and torsos, and that's about all I could recognize. The rest were mutilated beyond recognition. Their organs were everywhere. I wrote a letter to Nickelodeon about this. 
Nickelodeon's reply to my letter. Dear viewer, we are so sorry you saw that. Somebody broke into our studio and hijacked our channel. For what happened, we will create a bumper of the Nickelodeon fish and the characters giving their sincerest apologies. Then we will fix any damages done to our shows. We will also give a little tip in said bumper that the Nickelodeon channel will be off air for a bit. We will give you a free copy of the bumper if you want to watch it again on Blu-ray. Best regards, Nickelodeon Studios. Afterwards, I watched the copy of the bumper they gave me. It was hilarious. SpongeBob wouldn't stop making funny faces and he worked to fix the logo with the others. I am now willing to watch Nickelodeon again, despite what happened this year. So if you're watching SpongeBob and you find Patchy telling you to stop watching, listen to him. Please. business. It's all the things that keep this world turning. And behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving. It's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint, the startup and the stadium, hospitals and hotels, banks and restaurants nationwide, all choose the advanced network, cybersecurity solutions, and round-the-clock trusted partnership from Comcast Business, the company that powers more businesses than anyone else. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Call or visit ComcastBusiness.com to learn more. Goat Man, written by Saucy Pasta. I was 16 and had family down in Alabama. They're all farmers and own a huge amount of land in Huntsville. My uncle owns a big house and a bunch of trailers they put out in the woods for hunting and camping. While I was down south, my cousin suggested that we go camping for a few days. We get to the camp and it's obvious something is weird. The air has a strange electric smell, like right before a storm, like ozone. We don't think much of it and unpack and go down to a little creek to swim for a few hours. All of a sudden, some older white guy and a white teenager come out of the bushes. He has a shotgun in the crook of his arm and says hello. He asks what we're doing this far back in the woods. I tell him about my uncle, who he knows, and say we're camping out. He tells us we need to be real careful out here and stick together because there is a big animal in the woods. His son, who is about my age, asks if he can hang out with us. His dad says okay. We end up playing football and dicking around. There's me, the white kid, Tanner, five of my cousins and four of their friends. Five girls and six boys. We were all around 15 to 17 years old. We ended up just dicking the whole day through and going back to the camp and getting set up for the campfire, even though we had trailers and kitchens. Tanner said he wants to run home and ask his dad if he can come camping with us. His family's property sits up against my uncle's. My cousin, Rooster, says he's going to go with him since it's getting pretty dark. One of the girls says she's going to tag along. At this point, it's about 7, and it's starting to get pretty dark. They take flashlights and head off on the trail towards Tan's property. The rest of us just chill and make s'mores, drink, and hit on the girls. About 30 or 40 minutes later, there's the smell of the ozone again. 
You could smell it over the smell of the fire we had going. It had a really nasty copper smell, like the smell you'd get after you had a nosebleed. It wasn't exactly like dried blood, but it was that strong, metallic, back of your throat smell. We immediately think that it's some kind of electrical malfunction, or someone left a hot plate on or something. We search the trailers and nothing is on, but we can all smell it. All of a sudden, we hear people booking back down the trail. Rooster, Tan, and the girl all come running into the clearing of our breath. They don't even break stride, they all just run into the trailer next to where the fire is. We all nope and get the hell out of there, and get into the trailers. They end up calming down for a bit, but even Rooster is crying his eyes out. Meanwhile, the fire is getting lower and lower, so my other cousins, they say screw it, and go outside and start up the generator. Tanner says, hell no, and locks the front door. Ain't nobody else going outside. He's been crying too, and his eyes are bloodshot and puffy, and his pants are dirty. He goes on and tells us that we went up to his house, and his father said it was okay for him to go camping. He just needed to make sure that they were careful on their way back, and maybe they should take one of the hunting rifles, just in case. Evidently, Tanner had seen something in their yard a few days before, and then one of their pigs had turned up ripped in half and eaten. They assumed it was some big cat or coyote, even though they don't usually mess with live animals. We had gone upstairs and packed his stuff, and told his dad that they were okay without the rifle, because coyotes avoid people. So they started walking back towards where we were camping. Rooster finally stops crying and shaking. The girl had stopped too, but she was just staring out the window with a dumb look on her face. He says they had gotten halfway into the woods towards the camp when they started to hear the stuff from the forest. It was almost pitch black by this time, so they weren't sure what the hell that noise was. The girl said she heard something in the bushes right off the trail and then all beamed their flashlights over there. There was something standing back in the woods, in a little hollow. Rooster said they shouted at him and told him to stop scaring the crap out of them. He said that's when he realized that the guy was facing away from them. So they keep walking and they start to smell the nasty, coppery ozone smell. And they say that the look off into the forest of the opposite side and it's a dude standing in the forest backwards. But this time, he's slightly closer to the path. So now they start power walking, and Tan keeps saying he should have taken that rifle. As they're telling the story, the smell is still super strong, even inside the trailer. They say after they started walking faster, that a kind of low gibbering had started coming from both sides of the woods. They started booking it back to the trailer. The girl said she flashed her flashlight out into the woods to the side of the trail and had seen something jerking itself through the forest and the gibbering got louder and louder. When they could see the light from the campfire, something was coming out of the woods and about 40 yards behind them into the trail. So they just flat out ran as hard as they could to the trailer. So now we're out of the woods, and at this point we're assuming it's some rednecks, or some people just trying to mess with us. All of a sudden, my other cousin Junior 
starts going on about how he went to school with a Native American kid that he was telling him about Goatman or something. We promptly tell him to shut up because that's the last thing we need is some spooky story at this point. But he keeps going on and on about some Goatman and how we're in his woods and blah blah blah. Now, at this time, I had never heard of a Goatman or any of that. But a couple years ago, the year before I graduated from college, I had a menum for a roommate, and I ended up asking him about it. To sum it up, it's basically a man with the head of a goat, and he can shapeshift, and he gets among groups of people to terrorize them. It's also supposed to be some kind of windigo, and it's bad mojo to even talk about it, and even worse if you see it. Keep in mind, I didn't know this back when I was 16, so my cousin is going, the goat man is going to get in here and kill us all. The girls are all terrified, and my cousins and I are all trying to figure out if it's just some hillbillies, or if it's some animal. So all of a sudden, the smell just goes away. Like to this day, I haven't experienced anything like it. Usually smells fade away or become faint, but this was literally there one second and just gone the next. So after an hour making it around 9 or 10, we stopped freaking out enough to go back outside and stoke the fire again. We figured it was just some guys trying to mess with us so we don't go back home. We think that if we do, they'll just chase us through the woods or something. Nothing else weird happens that night, and we stay another night. For the main part of the night, nothing happens. At about one in the morning, we're outside getting drunk and telling ghost stories. As some people finish a spooky story, I don't remember what it was about. The smell comes back, and it's so strong this time that one of the girls literally start vomiting. I stand up, and you can actually feel how clammy the air is. And I say we should get inside. This isn't right. We should have just left. We all go back inside and we're standing around. My cousin keeps going on about how it was the goat man. My cousin Rooster tries to shut him up. All the while I'm just feeling that something is wrong. And I can't figure out what the hell it is. We end up sitting here for a while and the smell is just as strong. We're terrified and all huddled up in this camper. We end up cooking brats for everybody because no one wants to go outside. It's on those four packs with brats in it. We have a total of three packs. I grill them up on the stove and give everyone a hot dog. I get mine. After a while, one of my cousin gets up and goes over to the stove to get another one. He starts grumbling about how I got two and everyone else got one. I look at him like he's stupid. I tell him that everyone only got one because there are only 12 brats. If he wants more, he should open up a new pack and cook some more. That's when the girl that had been with Brewster and Tan just starts screaming. Oh Jesus, oh Lord, get out. She's crying and shivering. And it dawns on my cousin who was standing up. He's asking her what's wrong. Me and him both glance around the room and then I feel my heart sink. I run the hell out of the cabin 
and the girl runs out with us. The trailer door bangs against the side as everybody books it out of there. One of my cousin's friends asks us what the hell was wrong. I start counting us and there's only 11 now. I'm not lying. My cousin verified. There had been 12 people in the trailer, being that everybody didn't really know each other very well. Nobody had really noticed the whole time that there was an extra person. Then I realized earlier that I had kind of noticed something was off. You know how you were just dicking around, having a good time? You don't really think about that. You don't always keep track of certain stuff, but now I'm dead sure that someone else had been in the trailer with us and that they had been there for at least a day eating with us. What makes it worse is that I couldn't figure out which one because I don't think anyone ever actually interacted with the other person slash thing. The girl keeps praying to Jesus and we're all sitting outside. Eventually, we get big ass sticks and go back inside the trailer and there's nobody there. We count again and there's 11 people. Everyone gets in the trailer and we lock the door. We explain what the hell just happened and the girl says that she realized it too. And when she was about to say something, the person sitting next to her had grabbed her leg hard and leaned over and said something she couldn't understand. So we are pretty much scared and we are just huddled together. I fall asleep. When I wake up, the sun is just coming up and half the people are asleep and the other half are packing our stuff. We want to walk back home, but like four people want to stay until the sun is all the way up. Some of the people think that we're just messing around and still want to stay in the trailers. I just want to get the hell out of the woods. The girl's name is Kira, the one that the goat man had touched. Anyways, I asked her if she was really thinking that there was something bad, and she says that she just wants to go home and doesn't want to stay out in the woods for another night. So we decide to split people up, and the four that want to go can go, and that I have to stay because I have the keys to the trailers, and since it's my uncle's, I have to lock it up. I'm super pissed at this point because I feel like people aren't taking this seriously. And I definitely don't want to go out to the woods for another night. So I spend the rest of the day trying to convince the rest of the people. Four guys and four girls. We need to get the hell out of Dodge. Tanner leaves with the other group to go get rifles. And he says he's going to be back. So there are just seven of us left at this point, And it's about 4pm. At around 5, he hasn't made it back yet and we're getting extremely antsy. And the only reason I stopped begging them to get back was because he went to go get a gun. At about 5.30 or so, one of my cousins says that girl Kira is outside. We all look outside, and sure enough, she's standing by the fire pit, with her back to the cabin. I'm thinking to myself, she was so scared, why the hell would she come back? And I get this nasty feeling in my gut. Keep in mind, the whole time, the coppery smell has been gone, but now I realize I can smell just a twing of it. I say this to the rest of them. 
and they all laugh at me and ask if I made this all up to scare them. I look at them like, I'm not messing around right now. I ask them, why the hell would I play like that? So one of the girls goes outside to get Kira. She gets halfway to her and stops cold. Kira starts heaving. I don't know how the hell to describe it. Convulsing? Sort of like if someone had their back turned and was laughing without actually making any sounds. And it was the fact that I thought this made sense and made me realize that it was not a sound. It was the whole woods making this sound. It was dead silent. This was late September, so usually you could hear big geeses honking or some kind of bird or squirrels chattering. So I step out the door and tell her to come back into the trailer right now. She backs up a little bit towards the trailer and we lock the door and pull down all the shades except one. We put someone in a chair to keep an eye on her. She stands there for another 20 minutes or so. Then the guy turns to say that she's still there. Then there's a huge bang on the door. We all jump up and scramble around the living room of the trailer. The banging is super loud. So now my cousin is holding one of the girls and the other two are kind of giggling with nervous laughter. Me and the other two guys are freaking out. Then we hear Tan. He's screaming. Let me in the door! Let me in! Stop playing around! So we go over to the door and open it. And he stumbles in with a rifle. There's nobody else outside. Evidently, he had walked up to the campsite. Nothing weird happened in the forest. But he had seen a girl who said she wasn't Kira. Still standing there. When he had gotten to the edge of the clearing, she had turned towards him with this slack-jawed look and just stared him down, slowly tracking him as he walked around the outside of the clearing towards the camp. He said it wasn't until he almost was halfway to the trailer that he realized she was getting closer to him. She had started off by the fire and without him even seeing her move, she had been turning an inch closer. He said he just ran the rest of the way to the trailer thinking it would open. When he got to the door and it was locked, he turned and it was about half the distance to the door. He looks around the room and gets super pale. He pulls me to the side and whispers in my ear, You know there are only six of you in here, right? I get that feeling where your stomach drops into your nuts. I had been back inside the trailer while we were sorting out who was going where. It was right with us. We looked out of the window and there is nobody out there. So we recount everyone and then basically I go over and ask everyone how many people were here earlier. Everyone says eight. I ask, how many are here now? Everyone counts and then realizes there are only seven people in the cabin. Tan had brought back a couple of boxes of ammo and his rifle. He told his dad there was some sort of animal out in the forest because he didn't think his dad would believe him if he said it was the goat man. He says that his cousin is supposed to be coming down in a few hours and that in the morning we can all go back to his place and his cousin will drive us home. Now I'm really terrified, but at least I feel a bit better knowing we can shoot whatever it is if it comes back. 
Then my cousin gets into a huge argument with one of the girls because she accuses us of trying to prank them. My cousin keeps telling her that I'm not the type of person. She asks how do we know the girl by the fire wasn't just Tanner in a wig, or if it really is the goat man. How do we know that this is the real Tanner, and that the goat man didn't just kill Tanner in the woods and take his gun? Tanner and I make it clear that we could be in serious danger, because at the very least someone has been sneaking themselves into our trailer without us knowing and mingling with us. Goat man or not, we weren't safe. One of the girls starts crying and saying she wants to leave right now. We're trying to tell her that there's no way because none of us are walking through the woods in the middle of the night. At this point, the sun is starting to go down and it's getting a little cloudy out. We eat something and turn on the radio for a while, but we can't really get any stations out here. Nothing decent, so we turn it off about the time Tan's cousin shows up. The sun is just barely over the horizon, and he has one of those heavy-duty lantern flashlights and another rifle. He walks up to the trailer and he whispers to Tan, asking if he's sure that's his cousin, and he says yes. The guy looks behind him, all around the camp. Then he walks in and kind of glances at all of us and looks a little confused. He says, Where's your other little buddy at? I figured she'd meet up at the trailer. Is she a little slow or something? He also asks what we've been cooking because it smelled like blood and hot pans all the way up the trail. We all ask him what the hell he's talking about. He had come down the same trail as Tan had been using and said he came up on one of you guys' buddies standing in the middle of the trail looking at him slack-jawed. He had asked her a bunch of questions but all she did was just look at him and then smiled. He said he kept walking but she couldn't seem to keep up with him and kept falling behind. He asked if she was hurt but she just stared at him. He kept walking and had turned around a bend in the trail, and when he turned back to check on to see if she was still there, the trail was empty. He assumed she took a shortcut back to the trailer. We tell him the whole story of what's been going on. He can't believe it. I expected him to say that we're full of it. I think he was 19 or so. He just listened and then sat down on the couch in the living room. He said when she kept lagging behind him, it kind of weirded him out. So he tried to slow down and keep her in front of him, but no matter how slow he walked, she always tagged behind. He also said he smelled this nasty smell that got stronger as he got closer to the camp. Eventually it got really strong and he heard her say something in a low, quiet voice. He turned back to ask her what she said, and she had caught up right on him. He went to reach out for her to grab her, but he said he must have misjudged her distance because she was off to the side where he put his hand. The whole time, she was just staring right at him. At this point, we know this is real, unless Tan is playing a joke, but you can tell he's just about pissing his pants, so we know he's not. They loaded up their rifles and we ate some more. We all sit around until about 11. To this day, whenever I think about this, I really pray to God 
that it was just some huge prank that my cousins played on me and never told me the truth. At around 11, the smell of copper turns into a really nasty blood smell, like cooking blood and singed hair. Tan and his cousin Reese get up and grab the rifles. There's like a half knocking, half clawing at the door. And then there's a voice and it sounds like when you see those YouTube videos of cats and dogs whose owners teach them how to talk, it says in its halting, weirdly toned voice, It made my nuts creep up against my body. One of the girls started crying. It was so obviously not a person talking. It didn't have the right cadence, and that's something that I never realized until that moment. All people have a certain cadence when they talk, no matter what language. This didn't have it. YouTube those cats. That's what I heard. That's what it sounded like outside that door. Now I'm in full terror mode. We keep yelling outside. Who is it? Stop messing around. And it just keeps saying. For almost 15 minutes. Then the smell goes away for a while. And for the next hour or so we can hear someone creeping around in the woods. Every couple minutes, it comes back to the door and says something. Finally, the smell totally fades away when it's around 2 in the morning. Reese says, screw this, and opens the door and walks outside with his rifle. He fires a shot into the air and says something like, In the name of Jesus Christ, go away. He fires two more shots, and then from the woods near the river across the trailer, it sounds like something is slowly gibbering and hooting. Then it starts screaming, and it sounds almost like a woman and a cat and a bag screaming together. Like I've never seriously heard any of this stuff, and you can hear the brush over that way start to shake. Reese fires over into the tree line, and then starts backing into the trailer. We lock the door, and can hear the thing keep screaming from the outside. Reese says something had come out of the bushes, really low to the ground crawling towards the trailer, and he shot at it. That's pretty much how the rest of the night went. It was screaming for the next two hours, and we could hear the thing moving out into the tree line. It never came back to the trailer until everyone had fallen asleep. Tan had been sitting in the chair watching the door with his rifle and nobody else heard or saw this. He told me two days later after the whole thing was over. He said he had been nodding off after the screaming had stopped. He was almost asleep when he saw someone come out of the bathroom and then lay down in the middle of the floor and go to sleep. He just assumed it was one of us and he nodded off. Then he said he kind of realized something was wrong and while pretending to sleep, he counted us. There were nine people in the trailer. He didn't want to try and shoot the thing in the cabin and have it kill us all then and there, or have Reese wake up and start shooting everything in sight. 
so he just stayed awake all night pretending to sleep. He said sometimes it would stand up and kind of do this weird jittery thing or heave like it was laughing. Then it would just lay back down. So this story closes pretty weak because from my perspective, nothing else happened. We woke up and I noticed Tan was a little jittery and was avoiding looking at all of us. But we ate some breakfast, packed up, and started walking out of his house. He stayed last in the cabin, and he said he'd lock up and bring me my uncle's keys. He said to just start walking, and he'd catch up. We got a little bit up the path, and then he came running up, and we just jogged back to his house, and his cousin took us home. There was a window in the bathroom. When Tan had gone back to lock up, he said that we had been too stupid to lock the window, and it didn't have a screen on it. The window was messing up when we went there. I'm guessing it had been doing that all along. It waited for us to fall asleep or slip up and then get in among us. Tan told me it walked with us all the way back to his house. Then it lagged to the back of the group, looked him dead in the eyes, and walked back into the woods. Hypno's Lullaby, written by Anonymous. Come, little children, come with me. Safe and happy you will be. Away from your homes, now let us run. With Hypno, you'll have so much fun. Oh, little children, please don't cry. Hypno wouldn't hurt a fly. Be free, be free. Be free to play. Come down in my cave with me to stay. Oh, little children, please don't squirm. Those ropes, I know, will hold you firm. Hypno tells you this is true, but sadly, Hypno lied to you. Oh, little children, you mustn't leave. Your families for you will grieve. Their minds will unravel at the seams, allowing me to haunt their dreams. But surely, all you must know, that it is time for you to go. Oh, little children, you weren't clever. Now you shall stay with me forever. Ed, Ed, and Eddie Lost Episode Written by Anonymous. As you may know, the popular show Ed, Ed, and Eddie has been running for a long time. However, between October 7, 2003 and October 21, 2003, episode 34 was accidentally released one week before it was scheduled to. It was also known to some around the office the primary writer had been sick with the flu, and instead of going on to make episode 34, the show was supposed to replay episode 1. At 5 a.m. Eastern, people reported a very disturbing new episode premiering on Cartoon Network. Some children were unfortunate enough to see it. Apparently, the quality of the episode was mediocre when held to irregular standards. 
Animation was choppy, sound was constricted and very muffled. Reports of a line running up and down, similar to a crappy VHS tape, were received. Scenery was described as overwhelmingly dark and depressing without changing props and other background objects. Stormy looking. Characters also behaved oddly. Instead of the normal goofy, hijinks inspired personalities, viewers complained that they seemed extremely agitated, even hateful towards each other, and constantly about to begin sobbing after the lines. The protagonist also had a very bad lisp. No one knows why but he spoke with a sexual tone, and that further bothered the viewers. I was one of these viewers. The episode began with Eddie walking down the street with Ed. I noted that Ed was missing. There was an angular shot coming from in front of the two to show them walking toward the viewer. He, Eddie, was wearing the angry look he does when something goes wrong. His eyes were red around the iris. Ed looked absolutely forlorn and practically dragged behind Eddie with tears in his eyes, which were both lazy and looking in opposite outward directions. Kevin, the series antagonist, was riding his bike opposite of the Eds, towards them. The shot became very blurry, and low moans were heard coming from Eddie before Kevin hit him, which never happened because the screen went black. The screen then snapped back and Kevin was again headed towards Eddie, the view was so blurry this time, all I saw was a green blob headed toward the yellow one. Again, the low moan. Only this time, it sounded like a microphone was broken, and loud static came, greatly overshadowing the moan. A claymation sequence of Double D sleeping in Eddie's bed came up. Honestly, it may have been just the absurdness, but I jumped and shivered. Waking up and getting out of bed, he moved oddly around the circular room, the fast pitter-patter of footsteps being the only audio. The step sounds were very clear as was shown a bird's eye of him scampering around the room. There were no invisible doors. Ed began scratching. Sounded like a fisher cat as he moved wildly around the cell of a room faster and faster, until the screen began blurring again. The purple room's color swallowing a new orange blur. An extreme close-up of Eddie's front door sat in absolute silence for a long time. At least a whole two minutes of dead silence and a door. Next, we see Jimmy and Sarah at a doctor's office. Jimmy, obstructed in view by a hanging lamp, is crying loudly with Sarah trying to comfort him in an unusual warm fashion. It hurts, Sarah. It hurts. Suddenly, the door of the room is smashed open by a new character, a dentist. His face wasn't shown because he was tall enough to be out of the shot. Sarah was escorted out of the room Jimmy was shown. His headgear was mangled, the front bent upward, stretching his lips very high, tearing proportions. The front of his gums was trickling blood, and teeth were missing. The disturbing part was that he lost both arms and legs beforehand, apparently, and sat as a paraplegic. I almost cried as I came to the conclusion that the others had beaten him up and bent his headgear. The camera stayed on him and his mangled face for a few seconds, still as a picture, 
but silent as ever. Commercials came on. We were instantly assaulted with a very hairy Ralph in his darkened shed fisting the cow repeatedly. The visual loops gets blurry again as the scene pans out. Naz is reading a magazine on her couch. The quality is now perfect. Eddie is now alone without Ed. The quality declines worse than before and he's still walking. The sun now lighting the mood somewhat as he smiles and begins running. The door is shown again and we see through Eddie's eyes as he reaches out and opens it. His house is nice and bright, but a very badly played violin is blaring. The only audio in this scene as he makes his way through the house. Eddie opens the door to his room. Johnny is shown under Naz's couch as he crawls out on all fours in a comedic way and pops up behind her, still oblivious. I laugh because someone forgot to draw his eyes and I thought of a mole. Suddenly I stop laughing as he started swallowing her head. Still in a cartoonish fashion of course, but this, this was different. He and she stayed like this until she started kicking and struggling. Johnny held her like this until she went limp. A zoom in on his face revealed extremely small, human eyes. Double D was laying on Eddie's floor, no longer in claymation. The camera showed Eddie's house for the remainder of the episode, about three minutes. And the next program began on the spot. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode. Alien, written by Anonymous. There's always been a theory dashing around humans that there is life outside of our planet. That theory is technically correct, but not in the traditional sense. There is indeed life outside of our planet, a single life. A single alien, a very lonely one. All it wants is a few friends, but sadly, it's too far for your technology to travel at this time. It's constantly surrounded by the corpse of its creator. The creator before that, and so on. You see, the way this species works is that it births a single offspring with a single parent. The parent then dies, leaving the offspring to live its life. It has to walk through its world knowing it's the reason its creator is dead. It's the reason there's another one of those lifeless shells spread across its planet. I inform you of this not because it's dangerous, but because it's endangered. You human freaks need to speed up your technology and save it before the monsters reach it. Those that threaten this poor alien are ones that can be easily stopped 
if you have a Model 9 AGS 9021 compact laser rifle, but you shouldn't have those for a few hundred years. So, that is to say, they're nearly unstoppable at this time. But you can find it on the alien's planet. It doesn't know it, but it holds one of the strongest weapons of all time in its tiny infant hands. If you can reach it in time, it'll kindly give it to you. If not, the monsters will surely have ripped it from the alien's cold, dead hands, driving the species to extinction. The species used to have millions, to be one of the most feared races in the universe. Then monsters, different from these, wipe them out. Now as I said earlier, the aliens shouldn't be feared, but what you should be afraid of is that the fact that the home planet of these monsters is Earth. And I'm pretty sure that was their shuttle they just sent off, not yours. Anora Petrova, written by Anonymous. To BreeIceQ at gmail.com. Subject Bree, please read this. Bree, don't delete this. I know you hate me, but we were best friends once, and I need you to read this. I think I'm in serious trouble and there's nothing you can do, but I need you to read this so you understand. I know we haven't talked since selections. It's been forever, but what happened to you wasn't my fault. At least it wasn't entirely my fault. I know everyone thinks it was, but I would never do anything to hurt you. This is going to sound crazy, but I need to tell you this so that someone knows. It started when we were in the 8th grade. It was the night before the Crystal Classic competition. I was at home and I couldn't sleep because I was so nervous about competing. Well, I got on the computer, just sort of surfing the web and stuff, but I couldn't concentrate on anything. I was just sitting there, so I googled myself. I never should have done that, Bree. At first, it was all the usual stuff you find when you google yourself. Then I found a link to a Wikipedia page about me. I thought our club or my dad made it or something. There wasn't much there, just some basic facts about skating, what city I lived in, but the thing that got me was that it said I won that year's Crystal Classic. I laughed, I thought for sure someone just did it to encourage me. I confronted my dad about it, but he denied it. When I won the competition the next day, I was so happy. That was the first competition I ever won and it felt so good. Remember how hard I worked after that? That's when my parents hired Sergey to coach me. You know how much that must have cost. After that, I would check my page before every competition and it would always tell the results of how I placed. It said I would win the regionals at 15, and it all came true. After that, Sergey convinced my mom and dad that I had a real shot at the Olympics. That's when they pulled me from school. I skated every day. But I just wasn't progressing the way Sergei said I needed to if I wanted a shot at the championship. I was working so hard and I was skating well, but still, Sergei said I wasn't good enough. When the selections came, all I could think about was winning, so I did something I shouldn't have. 
Everyone was saying you were the favorite, and I felt like I had already lost that competition. So I made a Wikipedia account and tried to update my page to say that I was the winner. The thing is that after I tried to update the page, I checked it, and all it said was, Honora Petrova is a lying scumbag who's gonna get what she deserves. I broke down. That's why I looked so awful the next day. I was in a daze. I remember watching your routine and seeing your blade snap, and the next thing I know, I was on the ground and my face was covered in blood, from where the tip flew off and sliced my forehead. Then they told me it was my fault because I had your skates in my possession earlier. Bree, I honestly didn't do anything to your skates. I wanted to win, but I wouldn't do anything to hurt you. When they told me I was banned from any further competitions, everyone said that I got what I deserved. Nobody even asked for my side of the story. I guess you heard that Sergei dropped me after that. He said I ruined him. No one would talk to me. Do you know what it's like to be ostracized by everyone? I couldn't even get ice time. And then the page got worse. Anytime I'd check it, it would say all these horrible things about me. I can't even tell you half of them. The language was so vile. I'd cry every time I'd read it. But I couldn't stop checking it. I knew I had to do something. So I made a complaint to Wikipedia. I even tried calling them. But no one there claimed to know anything about the page. I was home alone that Friday night and I decided to check it to see if it had been taken down. The page was still there. Only this time it said, Honora Petrova is a pathetic little orphan. I freaked. I kept calling my parents to warn them, but every time I'd call, all I would hear was this horrible laughter on the other end. I must have called them a hundred times until I couldn't take the sound of laughing anymore. After the accident, the police gave me their phones, and there wasn't any record of my calls that night. I was so devastated. Before that, I was so busy training all day and doing homeschool. I never realized just how alone I had been the whole time. I know you tried to reach out, but I was so depressed and angry I just shut everything out. Once I turned 18, I got the settlement money from the court. I came to Switzerland. I got to reinvent myself. My skating really took off. It hasn't been a year and I feel like everything that happened was so long ago. That's why I shouldn't have done it, Bree. I'm writing you now from an old hotel outside of Prague. I'm auditioning for the ice circus tomorrow. I know it's the kind of thing we used to make fun of, but I really want this. I was feeling really nervous, and out of an old habit, I checked my page. It's so hard to say this, but, but when I checked the page to see if I get the job tomorrow, all it says is, Honora Petrova died friendless and alone and it has today's date listed as the date of my death. I'm sobbing so hard, I can barely type this, but I wanted you to know the truth. Please believe me, Bree. I attached a screenshot of the page so you'll believe me. It's all there just as I told you. I don't know what to do. I don't know anyone here and nobody speaks English. I keep refreshing the page. God, it's been forever. I keep refreshing it, but it still hasn't changed. I'm waiting for midnight. 
I don't know what to do, so I lock myself in my room. There's only a few minutes to midnight now. All I can do is refresh the page. I'm exhausted, but I can't stop. I'm afraid to leave the computer until I know what happens next. A Dead Bart Update Written by K.L. Simpson Well, I had to get rid of that computer I watched the episode on, even after a complete reformatting. It never worked correctly. The episode file could never be deleted from it, and it kept opening on its own. I wiped the hard drive several times, clean, and the episode would not go away. The sound control didn't work, and it was a laptop, but the power never seemed to run out, and I couldn't get it to turn off. I was going to keep the computer just so I'd have a copy of the lost episode, but looking at it was making me nervous. I had a recurring nightmare several nights in a row. The episode was playing, but instead of the photorealistic Bart corpse, it was myself at 10 years old. I found a picture of myself at 10, and the nightmare was closer to it than my own memory had been. I swear, that picture of myself at 10, dead, started flashing on the computer screen so quickly that I could never be sure. After that, I destroyed the computer. I haven't been able to get the episode out of my head, though, and I decided to do more research to try to understand it. I found a few people online who seemed to know about it. Apparently the episode aired once in a suburb in Portland, Oregon. I have a cousin who was watching The Simpsons during the first season and lives around there, so I asked him if he remembered the episode. He asked me how I knew about it. It was a nightmare he had that he had only told his parents about, and I was only a few years old at the time. I told him about the episode I saw and the people online who remembered it. He thought I was just playing a prank on him, and then I got him to look online and see all the posts about it. He screamed and hung up. He hasn't responded to any attempts I made to contact him since. Determined to get to the bottom of this, I kept searching online. I found someone who said that they had a tape of it. They would sell it to me. I was nervous, but determined to find out the truth about this and end the matter. I bought the tape as well as a really old and cheap TV slash VCR, since I had a feeling neither would be the same after I watched the episode. The episode is pretty much the same as the file I downloaded. I don't want to say anymore. This wasn't worth it, and I'd give anything to go back to how I felt when I had the computer with me and that file scaring me. I destroyed the tape, but it didn't help. The commercials on the tape, I don't want to remember them. There were monsters from my dreams I had never told anyone about. News promos about tragedies that hadn't happened yet. Surreal computer-generated animation that wouldn't have been possible in the 80s, or now for that matter. A former friend watched it with me, but he saw completely different things, with one exception. There was a seemingly live news report from June 6, 2013, in complete monotone. He recited the details of millions of people having died in their sleep. 
some of them waking up for a few seconds first, rambling incoherently about something that people could only piece together, had something to do with nightmares. I'm sure you can figure out what date was on the tombstones of the currently alive celebrities. There was one difference in the episode itself though. The joke Homer told was completely clear on this version. When it zooms in on Homer's face while looking at Bart, he says, If only we all were that lucky. I Work at a Haunted Hotel Written by Matthew Pruitt So, why do you want this job? I straightened my tie while staring into the eyes of this person who would determine my employment. His eyes looked weary and he looked tired. He sipped from his coffee mug. Well, sir, I feel I could do well at this job. I have great customer service experience and I'm a very hard worker. A smile slowly came across his frozen face. I honestly just wanted a job. I moved to this new city with my girlfriend and don't really have much to offer. She hasn't seen her dad in so long though, and I haven't met him yet. I have every intention of marrying her. Good enough for me. If you really want this job, I would ask you to prove it. He rubbed his face and it looked like he had tears in his eyes. Close your eyes and say that you accept all responsibilities in this hotel and that you are now an employee. Uh, okay. I accept all responsibilities of this hotel and I am now an employee. The man began laughing hysterically. Joy overcame him with tears streaming down his face. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God I am no longer cursed by this godforsaken place. Bless you, sir. I was so unbelievably confused. What are you ta- He cut me off. The list. The list, the list, the list. Take, take it. Take it, my boy, and, and pay close attention. He took off, sprinting through the door, and soon I could hear his car speeding off. In front of the table was a letter with a sticky note on it, which read, before you read this letter, just know I am truly sorry. This hotel has always been here. It just popped up one day out of the ground. Most people in town know about it, so please, be very careful and follow the rules. I was confused. I had to see what was on the paper. It read, My dear mortal, if you are reading this, you must have proclaimed the desire to be the living employee of this fine hotel. You will see some other workers, but they were once in your shoes, but decided to check out early and are now forever here. A few things must be known. This hotel has been around for a very, very long time. And things are done a certain way for the sake of everyone's safety. With that being said, you must follow the rules. Rule number one. If a man approaches you and asks you for a pool pass, make sure to tell him you don't have any more. Rule number two. Human guests may stay here, but do not let them on the sixth floor. Rule number three. If you see a woman in a yellow dress, make sure not to make eye contact with her. She won't bother you unless you bother her. Rule number four. 
Do not talk to any other employees beside the other three lobby workers who are on different shifts than you. Failure to do so will have punishments. Rule number five. You may stay in your employee room on your days off, but do not go into any other employee's room. Rule number six. Stay out of room 405. Rule number seven. No television. When the paintings near you, warn you. Rule number eight. The jazz man might come through during your shift, and if he does, hide under your desk. He won't show up when human guests are nearby. Rule number nine. Set up breakfast every morning. Failure to do so will upset the wrong people. And finally, rule number 10. Never forget the rules. You will be paid bi-weekly and get your check through the mail slot of your room. Your bags are already in your room. If you decide to change career opportunities, have someone else accept the position. Leaving the job will make your life miserable, and ending your life means permanent residency. Best of luck. You are marked. I felt like I was ready for the cameras to roll out. I was certain I was having a horrible prank pulled on me. I was waiting for my girl to come out laughing and give me a hug. Then Tony came walking in from a room near the front desk. He said he was one of the human ones. He was a chubby man with a reddish beard. This is a funny joke, buddy. So, who put you guys up to this? Cause I gotta tell you, it's pretty hilarious. He sighed and with disappointment looked up at me. I wish it were. The man that you replaced is actually your girlfriend's father. She knew about the curse. She used to work here. Listen, buddy, I've had enough of your jokes. Then I heard a smooth saxophone and keyboard rhythm. It sounded so out of tune, but blended. Tony grabbed me and pulled me down behind your desk. Stay quiet, damn it. The tears in his eyes showed that he wasn't joking. I heard loud footsteps. They began scraping on the floor as if whoever they belonged to was dancing. Is anyone here? Hello? The music went quiet, and when I tried to stand, Tony held me down. The music began to slowly fade, and a smooth voice said, Maybe next time. Tony picked me up and apologized. He explained to me that the other two employees were in their room. One time, the jazz man took an employee near me, and he was dragged to the sixth floor. He was just snatched. I don't really know how to process any of this, but I am terrified. My bags are literally in my room, too. I'm so scared. Please help. Never Look Out a Window at Night Written by Chris Fox I was always told not to look out a window at night because you might not like what's looking back at you. They call this an old wives' tale or something, but for me, it was just a bunch of silly crap. 
so I made a point to do the exact opposite. Like most people my age, I guess I felt like I was spitting in their face or something. The logic behind it wasn't really necessary. Some old person just making things up. I mean, who the hell goes around looking into people's windows, am I right? And since I didn't believe in ghosts, monsters, demons, or whatever, I didn't give that notion a thought either. I know some of you will say that there are creepy people that have been known to do this, but I've always lived in a very nice neighborhood, so the likelihood of this happening was pretty slim. Or so I thought. One night, I got out of bed to make a late night deposit in the porcelain bank. I finished my business and washed up, then decided I was kind of parched, so I went into the kitchen for a drink. I grabbed the glass, opened the fridge, and filled it with tasty cucumber lime water I kept in there. Because who wants to drink boring tap water? I finished drinking, and as I was about to leave the kitchen, I glanced at the window. Might as well take a peek, I said to myself as I walked over to it. I looked out, and as usual, nothing there. I turned to walk back to my bedroom when I decided to take one more look. The most horrible face I've ever seen stared back at me. The face, which was pale white, smiled at me. But not with a regular smile. Its smile was inhumanely wide and filled with sharp teeth. I screamed, ran back to my room, jumped in my bed, and covered my head with the blankets. What the hell was that? I whispered to myself. I tried to put it out of my mind and go back to sleep, but it took a while. The next morning, my parents asked me why I had screamed the previous night. I gave them a lame excuse about seeing my reflection in the window and that it had scared me. They seemed content with my explanation, so there was no further discussion. Besides, I was convinced that I had imagined the whole thing up in the first place. It had been in the middle of the night. I was extremely tired, and my eyes were probably playing tricks on me. That night I found myself up late working on coursework for my new college classes. It had been hours since dinner, and I was starting to feel a little hungry. I knew there was a container of hummus and some artisan crackers with my name on them in the kitchen, so off I went. I started to head back to my room. As I passed the window, I stopped and glanced at it. I really didn't want to look out of it, but I refused to bow to superstitions. It was 2020, and I was a college student for crown out loud. My brain just wasn't built like that. I walked over to the window and looked out. Nothing. See there, I told myself smugly. Superstition is wrong again. I walked a few steps down the hall, then turned around and went back to the window and looked back out of it. The face was there, smiling its evil smile. I dropped the hummus and crackers as I backed away from the window. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't make a sound. The thing on the other side of the window raised a pale hand and wagged a long finger at me like a mother chastising her child. I fled to my room, and as I entered, I saw the blinds of my two windows were open. The thing's face stared at me from both of them, and I ran back into the hall. I went into the bathroom and slammed the door behind me. I slumped down on the toilet with my head in my hands and begged for the thing to please go away. I heard a tap above me, and when I looked up at the small bathroom window, the face was there too. It still smiled while it shook its head. It wasn't going to stop, apparently. Hopelessly, I stood up 
stepped into the shower and pulled the curtain closed. I stayed there for the remainder of the night, but I didn't sleep. The next morning, my parents found me in the bathroom. I tried hysterically to tell them what had happened, but they only looked at me like I was crazy. And after I tried to cover all the windows in the house, they brought me to the hospital. I've been hospitalized for about a month now, and it's really not that bad. The doctors made sure I got a room without any windows, which has really helped my mental state. And things have been going so well that a few days ago I got my cell phone back. With all this time on my hands, I've been thinking about the circumstances that led me to this point, and I've decided that maybe I was wrong about old wives' tales and superstitions. In fact, I urge anyone reading this not to blow off the old ways. They exist for a reason. That being said, there's another saying I've heard that I can't help but be concerned about, especially considering I have a mirror in my room. It's the one about the eyes being the windows to the soul. Silent Nightmare Written by Clerico of Madness Children Children are always warned not to stay up on Christmas Eve and wait for Santa, let alone try to sneak a peek at him. There's a good reason for this. In fact, Santa knows when you are sleeping, and he knows who has been naughty. For children who have been naughty, being awake on Christmas can be, well, unfortunate. How, after all, do you think he gets those small, young elves? The Abandoned Convenience Store Written by Anonymous Ever wonder how some people you meet seem to have no fear whatsoever? You know, those people who go skydiving every weekend, climb thousands of feet of mountains just to snowboard down a side that's probably safe as long as you avoid those trees. People who marathon, watch the scariest movies you've ever seen, then don't even blink before falling asleep. Well, if you envy them, then there's a way to conquer your own fear. You'll just have to pay for the consequences. Get on any passenger bus that travels a long distance. Greyhound is usually a good pick. Anything that's on the road for longer than 24 hours. Get a window seat facing west. Then stare at the sun, waiting until sunset. Just before the sun touches the horizon, close your eyes. Hard. Do not turn away. Don't look at anything else. Cover your ears if you have to. After a while, you'll notice that the bus has stopped moving. That's the signal that you can open your eyes. When you do, you'll see a gas station, illuminated only by a few flickering fluorescent lights. There will be no sun, no moon, no stars in the sky. The convenience store will have its windows boarded up, but the sign will say, open. If you feel you can't go through with it, go back on the bus, return to your seat, and fall asleep. You'll awake at sunrise the next day well on your way to wherever the bus was going. If you enter the store, though, the door will slam shut behind you, 
You will spend an unknown amount of time there, living out your worst nightmares made real. If you survive the ordeal without going mad, you will awake back on the bus. As it reaches its destination, nothing will ever scare you again. Some say that after going through this ordeal, everything else simply pales in comparison. Others say that all that room contains is all the fear you will ever feel in your entire life, and exposing yourself to all of it at once keeps you from feeling anymore. This, however, can only be done once. There are some exceptions to the ability as well. All I know is that if you try to repeat this feat, the sign on the door will say closed. Timmy is Dead Written by Anonymous This episode was aired on May 14th, 2008, at 5.30 in the morning on Jetix. I was awake, and I was watching TV, and I saw that Jetix presented an unseen episode of The Fairly Odd Parents. The episode was called, Timmy is Dead. It seemed to be a pirated episode, also because the character design was not perfect. The episode started with Timmy going on the bus to school and then Francis appeared and gave him a super punch, and Timmy gushes blood from the nose. Then came the teacher, Denzel Crocker, who told him he was expelled, and Timmy came home crying. But he didn't cry in a normal way. In my opinion, the way he cried was more diabolical. Then he went to talk to his fairly odd parents, saying that he hated his life. It was strange that he said that, but I kept watching because I found this an interesting episode. Wanda asked why, and Timmy answered with a strange voice. Everything happens to me, and I'm sick of all of this. Then Timmy's parents, laughing diabolically, told Timmy they had to leave and he had to stay home with Vicky. In that scene, for a few seconds, a decapitated baby and worms inside appeared. It was disgusting. Then again, Vicky appeared and told Timmy that he was an idiot, a lifeless stupid, and some other swear words. I was surprised to hear all of this in a children's program. Timmy went to the bathroom and began to cry, but this time he cried blood. Cosmo and Wanda said, What's going on, Timmy? And he says, I'll finish with this. At that moment, Timmy wished to die. Cosmo and Wanda told him not to do it because they will go to magic prison. But Timmy laughed diabolically, and then his wish was fulfilled. Timmy's eyes jumped out from his face, his teeth rottened, and his cap caught fire for no reason. Timmy was in the bath, all bloody, and you could see Cosmo and Wanda who had gone out crying. Then Jorgen came and told Cosmo and Wanda that they would have to go to magic prison and Cosmo told Jorgen that it was not their fault that Timmy had committed suicide by the stress that he had. Jorgen replied that their mission was to have Timmy lead a quiet childhood without suicide. After Timmy's parents arrived and they saw the bathroom, they saw all of the blood they blamed Vicky. She replied that it was not her, but the angry out-of-control parents began to break everything by seeing Timmy's dead body in the bathroom. Vicky suffers the consequences, 
Timmy's friends were able to testify everything and tell the truth about Vicky, and she ended up in jail with a life sentence. But the part that came later that I will never forget is when Vicky, in her diabolical voice, said, The Naughty List, written by Red Nova Tyrant. Twelve seems to be the age when kids start putting the heat on their parents about the truth behind Santa. I was certainly no exception to this rule. How were Santa's elves able to make that video game I wanted in their workshop? I thought Nintendo owned Mario. Or how about the ever-infamous visiting every house in one night question? That the jolly old man owns some kind of time-extending device? Or perhaps the most obvious question of all, how could he have lived for this long? A lot of people say he trains apprentices who take his place every few decades. Others claim he is immortal. As for everything else, magic seemed to be the universal lie everyone has agreed on. Whatever the case, I just went with the conclusion that it was my parents' doing. Of course they deny it and claim ignorance if I confronted them, but it wasn't enough to dissuade my beliefs. So one Christmas Eve, when I couldn't sleep, as these questions danced among my dreams of sugar cereals and new video games, I decided to investigate the noises coming from my living room. This time, surely, I would catch my dad or mom and the act of stowing presents under the tree. At least then they let me in on the truth. But as I entered the living room, I saw a man before me that I, I did not recognize. He was dressed in red and white, with a slightly overweight body, and he wore a stringy, fake white beard. His hair, or what remained of it, was graying around the edges of his classic Santa hat, and his eyes were wide with fright as he dropped a present under the tree. Being the intuitive youth I was, I came to one of two conclusions. Either this was a home invader stealing my family's gifts, or this was the real Santa. I opened my mouth to scream, but the man rushed towards me and covered my mouth. Shh, shh, he said, putting a finger in his mouth, trying a smile. Tears began to roll down my cheeks, I was petrified of this man. Then slowly, he took back his hand and extended it towards me. It's all right there, little one. You know who I am, right? I nodded, not shaking his hand back. The trembling man nodded as well, then grabbed an empty sack lying on the floor and gestured to the tree. Look, see, I bring gifts. Now, run along to bed or I might have to put you on the naughty list. Regardless, I wiped my eyes and began to step back from the living room, trying to create some sort of distance between me and the stranger. The man simply watched, wiped his brow, and proceeded to approach the fireplace. I stopped and observed, confused as to how he was going to leave my house, but a blast of green flames erupted from the chimney, and the man fell back to the floor. I couldn't see his face, but I'm certain it was twisted in fear like my own. 
A massive bony hand spawned from the fire, and the arm that followed was draped in raggedy fur. Then another arm, and then the skull of some sort of wild creature with two large horns followed. Nearly as large as the fireplace itself, the bones popped and snapped as it slammed its hands into the floor. The entire monster was engulfed in the flame, yet it did not seem to burn anything in the house. The monster declared, speaking to what I guessed to the man on the floor. No, Eddie shouted back. I I did my part, see? Ten thousand houses. Like you said, right? Ten thousand, I I did my part. And yet you allowed a human child to see you. You know the rules. (laughs) Look, I've learned my lesson. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Just let me go, please. I delivered all the... Let you go. he whispered. I could make out his quaking figure being overshadowed by the creature in the fireplace. The next sound to be heard was a crunch, with a soft beginning and snapping finish. I jumped as the sound repeated a few times, finally letting out a shaky breath. I prayed in my head that it wasn't what I thought. But when the creature reared its head towards me, I saw the red and white pants hanging from its mouth as it chewed on Eddie's corpse, then watched it slurp up his legs like strands of spaghetti. I covered my eyes and tried to tell myself it wasn't real. It wasn't real. It it wasn't real. And after a quiet minute, I peeked between my fingers to see the monster staring back at me from the fireplace. The pace of my breathing grew quicker and sharper, my eyes unable to escape the grasp of those empty eye sockets. Now, run off back to bed, little one, or else I might put you on the naughty list. My legs finally found the strength to leave, and I sprinted from my parents' room, diving into the sheets with them. There wasn't a trace of the event of the night before when my family went down to the tree the next morning. There was even a little note next to the empty glass and a half-eaten cookie on the table. Have a Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. As much as I tried to take in the warm, comforting atmosphere that came with Christmas Day, I could not stop watching the fireplace, terrified that the monster would return. At the least, now I know the truth about Santa Claus. Tom and Jerry Lost Cartoon, written by K.L. Simpson. The 13 Tom and Jerry shorts made by the Czechoslovakian director, Gene Deitch, are infamous for their poor quality and rather disturbing nature, featuring badly done sound effects and animations and having a more realistic feel to the violence. Some have speculated that Deitch didn't like the concept behind Tom and Jerry, 
and was pressured into making them and wanted to make the people who watched his take on it feel bad for liking the concept. What many people didn't know is that Deitch was originally signed on to make more than 13 episodes the public has access to. Desperate to get out of his contract, Deitch made one more Tom and Jerry short that few have ever seen. The short was called Tom's Basement. It opened with Tom in a typical Tom and Jerry house. His owner was the fat, angry guy from other Deitch shorts. Tom's owner seemed even angrier than in his other appearances. The first scene is him stomping on Tom's tail in a very realistic and painful looking way because Tom is sleeping by the basement door. The owner yells at Tom to never go down there. Tom is clearly terrified and runs away to another room. Our view stays in the room by the basement door and we see Jerry come out of his mouse hole. He looks truly grotesque far more off-model than the other Deitch shorts. He gets an evil look on his face and follows Tom into the next room. The next few minutes are fairly formulaic. Jerry repeatedly manages to trick Tom into chasing him to the basement door a few times. But each time the owner catches Tom, he inflicts a painful-looking injury on him, which stays with Tom even after the scene ends. After three beatings, Tom is bruised all over, bleeding in a few places, and limping on a broken leg. After this, Tom starts to literally beg Jerry not to bother him anymore. He's not really talking, but he's crying and mumbling. And you can tell what he's doing by his body language. Jerry laughs at him and pushes him back to the basement door. The owner catches Tom again and goes ballistic. The camera zooms in on his face. It changes color and distorts as he yells at Tom in a much louder voice than any other sound in the cartoon. I can't post most of what he said on here, but it's definitely vicious and furious. It seems like Jerry has finally decided to take pity on Tom though. Jerry picks up a knife that was laying around and stabs the owner in the leg, quite graphically. Tom opens the basement door and they carry the owner's body down the stairs. There are dozens of other bodies down there, decaying and showing signs of their violent deaths. Tom and Jerry shake hands and it seems like they triumphed over the serial killer. But Jerry gets an evil look on his face again, and Tom says, in that ghostly, deep voice, Don't you believe Jerry stabs Tom, killing him, and throws his body into the pile. The last shot is Jerry putting up a for sale sign on the yard of the house, laughing, clearly planning to do it all again. Username 666 Written by Anonymous Username 666, also known as SM666 on Nico Nico Doga, is a video pasta by Nana825763. It shows what happens when one searches for the username 666 on YouTube and then refreshes the page a few times. This pasta has actually created a few rumors. One of which is that the original 666 account contained a virus that changed all text into sixes. 
Due to the popularity of the video, Nana825763 created a sequel called Another YouTube. There is a similar video to username 666 called None, all lowercase, whose non-colored footage appears the video, the corrupted account near the end. There is an exploitable clone of Nana825763's username 666. It's a clone. It works, but sometimes contains creepy viruses. If you're willing to take the risk of letting it into your system, that's fine. But it messes up computers, so just be careful. Sometimes, it even affects other pages, too. Story YouTube is a remembered piece of history. Back then in 2006, not much was known, and all that you could see in the community were just people uploading cat videos. But one particular user caused enough controversy to be called. The channel had posted a ton of gore porn and blood fetish that the user was recently removed from playing with the TOS, but it can still be accessed. One day, a person on YouTube had posted their experience with the channel from a defunct blogging website. I worked for YouTube during 2006. I was a busy worker, and I recently uploaded videos here. What I didn't know that some of the YouTube moderators suspended a YouTube account. I told them what it was, but they wouldn't want me to. I was wondering why I wasn't allowed to go on that page, rather than what it was. But just then, one of the moderators handed me a piece of paper with the writing on it. It was a link. He pleaded me not to ask us about the secret username ever again. The link was a YouTube user link. It said, www.youtube.com slash 666. I went home after work and typed it in on my computer. I found out that the account was suspended, so it's no worry. But when I refreshed the pages several times, some things changed. All of the video tags turned into the letters X666, and every single text on the screen said 666. I thought someone was hacking my computer, but I denied it, and then refreshed it. Just then a channel popped up. It was 666's channel. I looked at some of the videos. Most of them were crazy. One video contained four babies twisting their heads. Another video showed swirled graphics. I decided to get off the video and went to another one. But a blank pop-up was shown. I clicked the blank button, and it took me to another video by 666. The video was shown a woman drowning in a pool of blood, and disgusting things happening. I thought this was terrible, so I decided to pause the video. It didn't let me, because it wasn't responding. I decided then to close the Internet Explorer, but it wouldn't budge. I also tried to go to another video too, but it didn't work either. I thought there was no way out, until I thought, the shutdown button, of course. I decided to shut down my computer so that the virus wouldn't get through my computer again. But the button wouldn't work. Shutdown buttons respond all the time. I knew that I was hacked. All hope was lost. I couldn't get out of the explorer, and the video kept going on and on. And there was nothing to stop me. The girl in the video kept staring at me, looking at me with random sounds and beatings playing. Just then, the woman from the video's hands popped out of the video and crashed my Internet Explorer. 
After a few days, I was recently fired after going through the horrid experience with 666's channel. That's when I thought of this. Could this actually been made by the devil? Was it a joke to scare YouTubers? Either way, this myth was very mysterious. I haven't gone through sleep after watching those videos. I wonder who made them. This blog post was then defunct after two days when the blog was done. When anyone enters the blog, a message would pop up saying, Remove by admin, error code, 666. The blogger had sent me his experience by email, asking me to post this on this website. He also left a note. Never go nor refresh username 666. Once you have finished, it will never stop. It won't come out. I really hope no one has ever tried this. It returns. So you think you've seen the last of 666, right? Wrong. It seems that 2010 through 2012, username 666 has been found and so far it does not sound fake, nor is it made by Nana. Quotations. Not much information is known, therefore we will share what we have seen on this recent discovery in a list format for temporary layout. Username. Suspended 666 account. Created by unknown quotations. No chance it would be Nana again. Fake question mark? So far, no, not any chance. Date created October 2nd, 2010. The pattern was formed but decoded to show that each year that passes, the creation date changes, and when October 2nd hits, it says created in 2011, and then now says created 2012. Recent incidents, none to share. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode.